Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better, stronger, faster. Andrew and Michael Leyland. Oh, there we go. Bless it, though. I've got Edit Legends, haven't I? I've had my week off. Hello, Seven Soldiers. Yes! Four weeks of you editing. Oh, yeah. Hey, we don't have to do it. No, it's fine. That hasn't been in the book, but kind of has been in the book since the start. You've got notes on here for ages. I know. And we've just been like, we'll put it off, we'll put it off. I haven't done any notes in ages. But now you may not be leaving. Yeah. So, we can put it off again if you want. No. The only thing with this now is I've got to come up with a bunch of new shows. <laughs> and episode 200, we've got to come up with another idea for 200 now. Yeah. If you're not going to stay in the... Because the, the lovely listener, the college Michael's going to doesn't have dorms. <laughs> so it doesn't look like he's leaving. So now we've got to come up with something for episode 200 that isn't what we'd planned. It was a simultaneous episode 200 and the final ever show. We can still stop if you want. And we'll do it, do it as we'd planned. And then next week we'll start at number one. <laughs> just keep reposting them. Yeah, we'll just reboot ourselves as younger. Or re-record them because they were pretty naff anyway. Or we, we could... At the end, we just say, uh, and next time we'll be looking at Secret Origin. Okay. And then just come back and listen to Miles a big circle. Oh, I don't think we'll, I, could, I could go back listening to us. We'll have to retcon Not them. us, doofus. All right, all right. The audience. We'll have to retcon them and re-record them. No. That would mean re-reading some of those comics. We don't have to, just read them. You're right, we don't have to. Do we still, do we still have the notes? No, not for the early shows. Uh, I didn't keep them up. I should have done really, shouldn't I? Historical documents. <laughs> Gotta print them off and send them to, to we the take prizes. It. Yeah, we take it, we bury it in the ground for a bit and it become valuable. Okay. <laughs> Sell them in a vintage store. Yeah. Anyway, we didn't say hello. We we didn't. Good evening and welcome hello. to the show. It's always lovely to be here. Lovely listener. As you just heard, Michael's College, University, whatever it's called, does not have dorms. A slight flaw in your plan to leave home. It has to be said. It, it wasn't, because I didn't plan on staying in the dorms, but now <laughs> that plan's fallen through. <laughs> the best laid plans of mice and men. It, it wasn't. I don't know what mice have got to do with it. It wasn't the best laid plan at it all. It wasn't very well planned at all, from no. what I heard. But anyway, so, so I don't know what that means for us at the moment. Should we just carry on barreling? Should we pretend it's still the end? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be a nice surprise happens. for everyone when we carry on. If there's an episode 201. Or a horrible surprise. Or a horrible surprise for people that don't like it. But if you don't like it, why, why are you, are you listening? listening? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Just to uh, take the piss. Yeah. <laughs> that is entirely <laughs> possible. <laughs> they all listen just so they go, oh, they make me so angry. <laughs> 
because that's what I want to listen to. Something, <laughs> something that makes, that me, makes angry. me angry. Yeah, I want to see something that makes me angry. Just turn the news on. There is that. Anyway, uh, yeah. Oh, I got a gift. Yes. I got a lovely gift this week. I got a lovely gift. The gift was from Dr. Bill Robinson. A real He's not doctor. a real doctor, right. no. No, it's it's an honorary title. Right. Unless Bill really is a doctor and he's just lied to us all these years about not being a doctor. I'm not a doctor, but you know when you have to fill in forms and they ask you to fill in your title? Yeah. Doctor every time. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Are you not just the doctor? No, because they kind of ask for your first name and last name, so... So you couldn't pronounce it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, Bill, Bill sent me... Two Quantum Leap books, because we got talking about Quantum Leap. And he mentioned that there was a book that followed up on the last episode of the show. So I was quite interested by reading that. And he sent it me. Which I thought was quite nice of it. And he sent me a lovely lead figurine of Spider-Man in his black suit, that standing can, on a, a precipice. That can kill you, if you lick if it. If you lick it, yeah, because lead paint is delicious but deadly. Because I want to lick Spider-Man. Do you really? Well, what do you want? What part of Spider-Man would you like to lick? And that may actually tell us a little <laughs> bit more about you than we really want to know is my thinking on the matter. Anyway, Bill has written a letter. Listen to this, lovely listener. Real ink on real paper. As opposed to that darn f- uh, fake ink. <laughs> As opposed to fake ink on fake paper. Andy, hope you enjoy the books. I don't remember much about them. But then again, it's been almost 15 years. The figurine should make it as well. I'm worried about his arm breaking. If it's a duplicate of something you have, feel free to pass it along to Michael. Not a chance. <laughs> Looking forward to meeting you and the family if you make it back to Florida again. Sincerely, Bill. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dr. Bill. Mr. Dr. Bill. That does spark a very important question. What is your very important question? Will we be going back to Florida again? I would imagine at some point, yeah. We planned it for next year. We planned it for next year, yes. You know what happened? Real life happened. Darn real life. Yeah, sucks. I can't believe there isn't somebody who listens to the show who's not a millionaire. (laughs) I mean... I'd, of, all, I'd, of all 16 people. Of the 16 people, the odds that one of them would be phenomenally well One in 16. I mean, no one rallied to the cause of buying the Robin Masters estate. Yeah. Something I still lose sleep about every single night, that that could have been mine. Oh, I know. The, the screaming and the tears <laughs> is a giveaway. No, no, that's just the life in general. <laughs> anyway, tonight, six-part miniseries from DC Comics from 1986 slash... 87 Legends following on from last week's Forever Evil coverage how's the editing on that coming along uh, it's going great is it really it will do yeah have you started it yet uh, no <laughs> should we do some emails yes yes let's do some emails who's first in the email sack uh, Chris Franklin is the first out of the sack the last how demon how comfortable he is how comfortable he will have been sitting in that sack for that amount of time it's not wet it's quite dry and cosy one would imagine <laughs> I don't know. That's more about your sack than I wanted to it's know. It's the mail sack! <laughs> is that what we're calling it That's now? what we're calling it, yeah. The last demon on Counter-Earth is Chris. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Christopher. Teletubbies. Do you know what? I've never had an email that has begun by talking about the Teletubbies. <laughs> well done, Mr. Franklin. That's a first. You do know that Tinky Winky has more in common with the devil than Ghost Rider, right? <laughs> At least Jerry Falwell thought so. That baby in the sun is freaky no matter how you slice it. See, the problem with that, Chris, is I have no idea who Jerry Falwell is. Who is he? I don't know. Excellent, good. So you're of no use to me (laughs) on that particular pop culture reference. Congratulations to Michael on your impending college career in Manchester. I wish you you the best of luck. I'm sorry to hear you guys talking about ending the weekly show, but I'm also excited what you have cooked up for your final 25 shows. As Ali said, or was it the Kurgan, it is better to burn out than to fade away. 
Well, you, you may not actually be going anywhere now, but it's up to you if you want to end it anywhere to get away from the weekly grind and maybe just do it bi-weekly or monthly or whatever. I'm leaving that entirely in your hands, dude. I'm You're not. the one who's fleeing the coup. I'm a Warlock! Man, I've never read this, but I've heard much about it. Stalin is an interesting character. He's always been openly critical of the big two, but always comes back around to them and take him back, despite butting heads at nearly every turn. Roy Thomas being treated justly is ironic, considering Kirby portrayed him as a snivelling house Roy to a very thinly veiled Stan Lee analogue named Funky Flashman over in Mr. Miracle just a few years prior. Stalin wasn't all subtle here, and it does seem like the whole Marvel bullpen must have been asleep at the wheel to actually print this one. I really do need to read some more Command Day. Command Day. My exposure has been sporadic over the years. I do agree Kirby's artwork on this series is beautiful. Royer is perhaps Kirby's best inker over his long career. I think later inkers like Greg Theakston, who inked most of Kirby's 80s DC work in Superpowers, New Gods, Hunger Gods and Who's Who, tried to over-Kirby his art. Royer seemed to just bring forward what was already there. Yeah, that... That commandy out was gorgeous, wasn't it? Mm. Absolutely brilliant. Michael, coming to Kirby is just a part of growing up as a comics fan. When I first encountered Kirby's work, I couldn't even follow it. I think it was a reprint of the first Demon story from an early DC Digest around 1980 or so, where I first met Kirby. My eyes and brain couldn't even fathom what they were trying to decipher. When he did the covers on the Superpowers miniseries, I was flummoxed at his off-model heroes and really disliked everything he touched. I was kind to his earlier Marvel work showcased on reruns of the 60s Marvel superheroes cartoons because he wasn't quite Kirby at that point, but I slowly started to come round as I entered my teens, understanding the inherent power in his pencils and learning he all but created the visual language of comics. As I left high school, I was a full-fledged fan and devotee. I think it's a journey most comic fans go on. Not to sound patronising, but welcome to comic fan adulthood. This, your, your journey on the Kirby train has been quite interesting to follow. Yeah. But yeah, back when we first started, you remember very, very early on in the in the show, yeah. we covered an issue of Fantastic Four, and you were like, this is crap. Kirby's Fantastic Four artwork is crap. No, 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 The early stuff. The, it's rough. It, it, it's, it's a little bit crude. I wouldn't say it was crap. Compared yeah. to Commander. Compared to Commander, it's chicken scratches. Yes. But that's just how much he evolved as an artist. See, there is a school of thought that says, had Stan been willing to give Kirby the latitude he gave Steranko and stepped away from Fantastic Four and let Kirby take over, it would Kirby have left the FF? Interesting to ponder, I think. But then you wouldn't have got New Gods. Yeah. So... Was that straight after... Pretty big. He quit Marvel Marvel and went straight to DC, yeah. So... Pros and cons. DC would have been the loser there, as we'll see in tonight's series, which would never have happened yeah. if he'd stayed on Fantastic Four. I've always loved the visuals on Ghost Rider, continues Chris, but that origin sounds like a train wreck. Andrew, like Michael, I enjoyed the hell, pardon the pun, out of your synopsis. I remember reading his backstory in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and trying to make sense of it. Even that hallowed tome couldn't make it sound good. The first film, whilst no masterpiece, at least took aspects of this story and made it work somewhat. It worked better than this. Plug's art is kind of hit and miss. He seemed to rush his work a lot, but there are flashes of brilliance here and there in his Marvel work. He went on to do quite a bit of concept work for Hollywood, including designing the grotesque creations in John Carpenter's The Thing, I believe. Another fun one, and I look forward to hearing about your man thing. No, scratch that. No, don't! Scratch that, damn it! (laughs) Well, he did just get out the sack. (laughs) 
Yes, we did pull you out of the sack, Chris. So I do apologise for that. Luke Jacinetti's emailed it. The nights the light went out on Gwen Stacey and a matter of $200. Thank you to Chris for emailing. I need to say that before we carry on, Anna. Mac Daddy Leyland and Daddy Mac Leyland. Which one are you? Uh, I have no idea. Are you Daddy Mac? I'll be Mac Daddy. <laughs> Long, Long lady <laughs> Mac Daddy. Guys, just finished up those 70 shows 4 and 5, talking about Gwen Stacy, Luke Cage, John Stewart, and Deathlock. What a fun cross-section of Bronze Age. Regarding Gwen Stacy, this is one of those major moment issues which I have never read. Growing up as a comics reader in the 90s, I had no idea who Gwen Stacy was, except for a vague idea. It wasn't until the build-up to the Clone Saga, when Wizard Magazine ran an article talking about the original Clone storyline, that I learned about her significance. I need to find a reprint of these issues and read them just to continue checking those issues off the list so that I can talk about it rationally. In a semi-related note, I did read, just last night, Spectacular Spider-Man issue 200, which you guys covered in your Spider-Man series. By the way, it's almost impossible for me to write or say Spectacular Spider-Man and not a spider ham. Thematically, that issue ties closely back to the death of Gwen, with Harry taking MJ to the bridge and then Peter instinctively swinging them while it's lost in thought. I took that issue quite a bit, mostly because it builds on the broad strokes of the death of Gwen and then goes in a completely different direction. Although I have to wonder, did Sal Buscema's women look better in the Bronze Age? His MJ and Lizanne looked odd in this issue. I dug that look on Shriek in Maximum Carnage, but not on a glamour girl like MJ. His Spidey and Goblin looked fantastic, though. Now, Luke Cage. That's a topic I know well, having collected the hero for hire for more than ten years. The two-part story involving Doctor Doom over the matter of $200 is just a very well-known online story, although for years after I bought the issue, no one believed me that it was real. It sounds just so insane that until the scan of Cage asking Doom, Where's my money, honey? Everyone thought I was pulling their leg. Beyond the obvious awesomeness of Cage flying halfway around the world for too large, this story was important for Cage as a character. In his early adventures, Cage seemed to exist in his own little world, despite his adventures taking place in midtown Manhattan. He never managed to run into Spider-Man or Cap or even Daredevil. He didn't fight existing villains either, tangling with his own rogues like Diamondback, Gideon Mace and Black Mariah. So interacting with the FF and Doctor Doom was a sign that Cage was a real part of the Marvel Universe. Cage would continue to mainly stay in his own little corner, battling foes such as Senor Suerte, Mr. Luck, Lion Mane, Chemistro, Chemistro, you think it's Chemistro? I think it's Chemistro, Cockroach Hamilton, <laughs> Cockroach Hamilton and Piranha Jones, they are so 70s exploitation names, aren't they? Steeplejack and your boy Stiletto and Discus. <laughs> Oh, dear me. One thing I do want to point out, Luke Cage did not work out of Harlem. His office was above the rundown Gem Theatre in Times Square on 42nd Street in Midtown Manhattan. Harlem is way uptown from there, somewhere around 110th Street. In fact, Luke did not return to Harlem, lest someone recognise him as Carl Lucas, escaped convict. Also, regarding Luke's costume, it's an escape artist costume he was able to buy cheaply from a costume shop. That's where he has a chain belt. The chain was part of the escape artist act. His yellow shirt routinely gets destroyed, and Luke would later comment that he never had any good luck. Except that time I found the guy who sells these yellow shirts so cheap. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Thanks for the show, guys. Can't wait to hear the next one. Well... Thanks, Luke, and I hope you've already heard the next one. Next, Gotham Kid has emailed in again, but this time he tells us his real name. Yes. He's Trey Hooks. So he's not Mr. Gotham or Mr. Kid. He's, he's taken the mask off. He has. We have, we have, because 
secret identities are stupid, <laughs> and you couldn't possibly keep them. So every superhero needs to take off their mask yeah, in their movies. especially if they're played by Tobey Maguire. <laughs> Messrs. Andrew and Michael, I am just now getting around to responding to That 70s Show Volume 1. I found your coverage of Giant Size X-Men refreshing, because like Andy, once the team is recruited, I find this story just completely falls apart. I've never understood the confrontation with Krakoa. I've always felt X-Men 94 and 95 were a better opening story. I did want to offer some history and perspective, though. Out of the all-new X-Men, only four were actually all-new. Thunderbird, Storm, Nightcrawler, Colossus, with Storm and Nightcrawler being legion of superhero designs that Cochrane never got to use. Sunbird was an antagonist from around issue 60, and Banshee dates back to the early 30s of the original X-Men run, where he appeared as part of the Factor 3 arc. I also wanted to add some additional insight into Banshee's comments about the Grand Old Opry. The Grand Old Opry was, and somewhat still is, the premier country and western variety show on American radio radio from the golden age of radio and was always recorded live. Whilst the shows are now mainly just concerts, it still has the prestige of being considered the main sign a new country act has made it. I continue to enjoy the show Trey Hooks, a.k.a. Gotham Kid. Thank you for that, Trey, and thank you for your insight into the grand old opera, of which we knew nothing. No. But that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Our next email is Rob Mayers. Is Rob new? No, I think he's emailed in before, doesn't he? I can, ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> oh, I don't want to say he's new. He doesn't get new by bumps. Yeah. If he's... I'm, I'm, uh, I think he has. Okay. Okay, anyway. Hello, Leyland 1 and Leyland 2. You can argue over whom is whom. I'll be one. All right. First <laughs> off, I'm horrible at sending email or typing. I'm lazy. I spoke to you sadly months ago. I didn't think it was sadly. <laughs> Quite frankly, that was the highlight of my day. I'm very sorry you didn't see that, Rob. <laughs> Maybe you're just not that good of a conversationist. Uh, through Facebook IM, I was asking you a few tech questions, and your answers worked. Well, I was delighted to be able to offer my somewhat limited knowledge to somebody whose knowledge was more limited than mine, and therefore I actually seemed like I knew what I was doing. Always a bonus, in my opinion. What brought me to your podcast was Tom's Taking Flight podcast. He was covering parts of Nightfall, and said if you want some excellent coverage to check out your show. So? So? Check out your show. Thank you very much. Tom's Taking Flight Podcast. Tom Panarese. Big thumbs up for Tom Panarese. Let me say that it was a bit rough at first tracking down the episodes as they were on two different networks, but once I found them all, I was hooked. And the fact that you went all the way through Troika was simply amazing. No, no, Rob, it was just single (laughs) bloody-mindedness. Nightfall was my doorway to picking up books in the 90s as I was a junior in high school and more importantly I had a car so I didn't have to rely on mum and dad to get me into comics I could do it myself although A Lonely Place of Dying is what brought me to comics and is still my favourite arc Nightfall made me a comic collector and just when I fully get into comics Batman and Superman are nowhere to be found dead and paralysed thanks DC but I was still hooked the Nightfall Crusade part of the story when it came out I told myself I would not read it this is not Batman so I didn't. I hoped Bruce would come back as Batman, so I followed him, not that other jive turkey. And being a huge Tim Drake Robin fan was perfect, because Tim finally had a book, so I followed Tim and Bruce. I have the main parts of Nightfall and love them, and Nightfall the Search as well, but the Crusade now, thank you, changed my mind on Asbat. I actually found him an interesting Batman, and has kind of become one of my favourite other Batmans. So I have now gone and picked up the newest trade for Nightfall the Crusade, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it, even the implausibly spiky claws of death. So thank you, sir. I still think Nightfall today holds up very well, and is still a good read. There are a few parts that kind of drag, but as a whole, I think they told a very good story, and really showed why Bruce Batman can't let himself go down the path that Jean-Paul Batman did. Your podcast has turned me on to so many other great stories, I'm now collecting them as well. <laughs> we're not costing you too much money. I hate to think that. 
Especially if you buy something we like and you hated it. I always yeah. feel really bad about that. Well, why would you buy it if, if you... If you're... Yeah, we talk it up, though. Yeah. And everyone says, actually, you made it sound really good, and it was crap. <laughs> Mia culpa. Robert Culp. So now that brings me to the part of the email. I've been wanting to get into podcasting for a while, and there were a few shows I listened to regularly that inspired me. Taking Flight, Just One of the Guys, Fat Man on Batman, and Hey Kids, plus a few others. So I thought it was time to put my feet into the water and give it a go. My show is called Robin Everyone Loves the Drake. It was part of your Nightfall coverage that got me thinking, has anyone ever covered the Tim Drake Robin series? I looked and found that nobody has, so I thought I would just start at the beginning and run with it. So that's what I did. Starting with Batman issue 436, year three, and working my way towards Robin 1, I have nine episodes up so far, hosted by the BatmanUniverse.net, and you can find me on iTunes. I have included a promo, if you would be so kind. Thanks, Michael and Andrew. Keep the show coming. I have a lot of catching up to do. Take care, Rob Myers. You're very welcome, Rob. We would be delighted to play your promo. In fact, I will play it in this very show. Okay. Won't I? Yes. I will put it in this very one so you can hear Rob's promo for his show. And thank you very much for the kind words. I am humbled when people say they started a podcast because listening to us. And then I kind of think, what, did they think just because those two chances can do it, <laughs> anyone can? And I'm a little less humbled. <laughs> I, I don't think that's what they heard. <laughs> Really? Yeah. Really? You really know that they listen to this and go, these two morons can do it. Any fool can. When our name is next to Kevin Smith's podcast. (laughs) He's a professional, dude. Of course. He's a total professional. A a big name equals professional, isn't it? Yes, that's totally right. Anyway, we'll play Rob's promo, though, and uh, we will return after the promo that today I know what it's going to be. Because you just told yourself... Because I just told myself when I listened to it back in the editing, I'll be like, all right, I promised him I'd play this promo. (laughs) We'll be back in a minute with Legends. R, what's that stand for? Robin. Hello, everyone, this is Rob Myers, and I'd like to invite you to check out my podcast called Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake. Rob, are you going to take out the trash? I'm right in the middle of uh, recording a, an ad for my, my podcast. I'll, I'll do it in just a little bit, okay? Sorry to interrupt. Boy wonder time. Boy wonder? I'm all man, lady. Uh, Rob? Uh, okay, where was I? That's right. My podcast, Robin, Everyone Loves the Drake. It'll be hosted over at thebatmanuniverse.net. I'll be covering Tim Drake's origin story from the very beginning, starting with Tim's first appearance in Batman 436, also known as Batman Year 3, and hopefully going all the way through the Robin ongoing series, starting with issue 1 and going all the way to issue 183. 183 issues? Wow. Well, it's a good thing, because... Everyone loves the Drake. You don't like the Drake? I hate the Drake. I love the Drake. How could you not like the Drake? Who's the Drake? Who's the Drake? The Drake is good. Following on from last week's look at the current kind of company-wide crossover being published by DC Entertainment, we thought it would be fun to look at how it was done back when I were a lot. No mistake. Get off my lawn. 
DC's then executive editor Dick Giordano first pitched a Crisis on Infinite Earths 2 to editor Mike Gould with artist Jerry Ordway already attached as an eight-issue mini-series. Whilst the actual plot was yet to be determined, the series would feature lots of big panels and splash pages to differentiate it visually from Crisis, which, thanks to artist George Perez, had a number of small panels with lots happening. Gould poo-pooed the idea. He recalls saying to Giordano that it would be like making a Gone with the Wind 2, trying to come up with a sequel to a story that had a definitive ending. Giordano backpedaled slightly. It didn't have to be a direct Crisis on Infinite Earth sequel, he said. It could just be an excuse to have a bunch of superheroes running around together having fun. As long, Giordano stressed, as there was a good purpose to the story. Gold immediately set up the series. John Ostrander would plot and fulfil Giordano's request for a hot new writer. Len Wein would script, again following Giordano's request that a seasoned pro was on hand to ensure the hot new writer captured all the voices of the characters correctly. Ordway's pencils would be enhanced by the inks of Carl Kiesel. Eight issues of solid comics melodrama was secured when a pitch session yielded to the word Legends, which Ostrander pounced upon. He immediately threw out the idea that Darkseid offended the Earth's residents make legends out of heroes, when all they really need is Darkseid himself, would set about destroying these legends in favour of building his own. The series was pitched and approved. Other editors chucked in their own ideas. Captain Marvel, referred to as the real one, would be important, as there would be hope that he would prove popular enough to spin off into his own monthly series. Likewise, the Wally West incarnation of The Flash would also play a big part, again with a view to launching a new Flash ongoing monthly comic. Batman's inclusion would cause no problems, as he wasn't undergoing massive revamping due to the crisis, but Wonder Woman and Superman may be off the table due to the then-current rebooting of their histories by George Perez and John Byrne, respectively. As plans solidified, a new Justice League would also be launched from the pages of Legends, as the series had come to be named, as would the Suicide Squad. Schedules were jiggled to accommodate the new plans, which sadly meant Ordway, who had taken a penciling gig on Marvel's Fantastic Four comic, had to bow out. Gold approached John Byrne to see if he could fit it into his schedule, and Byrne, after seeing the plot, agreed, but his schedule meant he only had time for six issues rather than the planned eight. However, although securing Burns' services meant losing two issues from Legends, it did mean they gained the use of Superman from the get-go, a compromise all involved could live with. Wonder Woman would still be off the table, the altered schedule meaning she had shifted back from appearing in issues 4 and 5 to just showing up in issue 6, but Superman could now be slotted in in her stead. Scheduling of the crossovers then took place. Legends itself would now be 6 issues and would run through 12 titles, totaling 22 chapters, including issues of Secret Origins to provide some backstory and a prelude in Batman and Detective comics. Chapters 1 and 2 would appear in Batman issue 401, November 1986, entitled A Bird in the Hand, and Chapter 2 in Detective Comics issues 568 from November 1986, Eerie. Following this, the first issue of Legends would drop. As with Forever Evil, we will not be looking at the tie-ins. Rather, we want to perform an experiment and see if this works as a standalone tale, something I personally felt was lacking from Forever Evil. In addition, it's a chance to look at how crossover event-led stories were handled back when they were a new thing, nearly 30 years ago, in comparison to how they are handled today. 
Cover-dated November 1986 and entitled Once Upon a Time, Legends Issue 1 features a painted cover by John Byrne. It's almost Fantastic Four-esque, featuring a symbolic dark side holding Brimstone and Macro Man in one hand, whilst Firestorm, Captain Marvel, Cosmic Boy, Changeling and The Flash stand, hover or try not to fall from the other. It's signifying Darkseid's string pulling and the clash between the two parties. And whilst this doesn't actually appear in the issue, because that would be silly, it's indicative of the story. It works as both a poster cover and a reader enticement. Byrne only did a few painted covers here and there, and this is gorgeous. The epic of the century starts right here runs the cover copy, which is hyperbole of the highest order given that Legends is largely forgotten today. What do you think of the cover, Michael? Dark side looks good, in it? Dark side looks awesome. What do you not like about the rest of it? I still like the other people. They look boring. They look boring? Yeah. There's, there's, there's hardly any detail on them compared to Dark Side. There's a ton of detail on Captain Marvel. You just look at Firehead. Firehead, that would be Brimstone. You didn't read the comic, right? I did, I, I forgot. Well, Brimstone doesn't have a lot of detail on him in the comic, so... Is it even painted? I, d- I don't know, it looks like... It doesn't look just drawn and ink, does it? I, d- I, th- I thought, has he gone over it paintingly? Because it looks completely different to the other covers. Yeah. Is it watercolours, do you think? And then he's inked on top. Yeah. It's not a standard paint, uh, penciled cover. Okay. I think we can agree on that. But I don't actually know what it is, because, you know, I don't know what art is. Do I? As I frequently proved. On the fiery pits of Apocalypse, Darkseid is perturbed that that pitiful planet Earth honours the legends of its many heroes, rather than preferring the mighty Darkseid. He summons glorious Godfrey and Dr. Bedlam with a view to destroying the mythic nature of humanity, leaving only Darkseid to worship. Using the Techno Seed, Darkseid creates Brimstone, but conveniently nearby, Dr. Martin Stein, who, using his molecular bond with Ronnie Raymond, summons Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. Firestorm is quickly outclassed by Brimstone, and feels he needs somebody more in Brimstone's league. See what he did there? League? League? Yay! Clever. Elsewhere, New Flash Wally West tackles Deadshot, and after dropping him off with the police, takes off for Titan's Tower, where he and Changeling see G. Gordon Godfrey on TV, stirring up trouble. See, Godfrey feels that all heroes are a ticking time bomb, a fact interviewer Billy Batson doesn't agree with. However, when a mysterious macro man appears, Billy utters his magic word, Shazam, and becomes Captain Marvel. The two go toe-to-toe, but Captain Marvel is grabbed by Macroman, and to escape, he utters the word again, changing back to Billy Batson, but incinerating Macroman in the process. Believing he has murdered him, Billy vows to never become Captain Marvel again. In Washington, D.C., Colonel Rick Flagg meets Amanda Waller, who offers up suggestions for the membership of Task Force X, whilst in New York, the Justice League arrive to help Cosmic Boy fight Brimstone. That'll be one for the ages with this current uh, league lineup, won't it? Cosmic Boy. <laughs> and uh, lovely, the lovely Cosmic Boy, yes. Um, I'm not going to take the piss out of Cosmic Boy's name, and I'm not going to take the piss out of the fact that he wears pink. It's far, far too easy. <laughs> it's a lovely colour. <laughs> on, on, on girls. He wears it well. Is all I'm going to say. It's, it, I think he, he looks very fetching. Does it? Does yes. It? Yes, he does. <laughs> yes. He does. Cosmic Boy is such a crap character. <laughs> Cosmic 
Cosmic Boy has a fan club, dude. <laughs> what do you not like about Cosmic Boy? I don't know. I just don't, I'm not a big fan of the Legion. I'm not a big fan of the Legion. But you know what? You can't say something like that because the Legion's fans are small but vocal. And we will get hate mail. <laughs> The Legion just never floated my boat. It's as simple as that. I, I get that people love them, but for me, no, I just it just wasn't my bag, man. Anyway, should we, should we talk about the comic instead of Cosmic Boy's sartorial style? Oh yeah, okay. Or lack thereof, <laughs> as the case may be. It's, it's easy to see why Byrne agreed to do this. It's clearly a chance for him to draw a ton of different Kirby creations from the one he drew at Marvel. He renders Apocalypse and Darkseid exceptionally well. However, Desaad conjures up images of Earth's legendary heroes, which Darkseid then picks up as if they're Megodolls. Are we to assume from this that Desaad's conjuring can be given form? Because I just got the impression that that, that was just like hologrammatic creations of the Flash, Captain Marvel, the Batman, Green Lantern, Superman, John Johns, and whoever the hell else is there. It's a nice collection of Mego dolls. That's to yeah. be said. I think the uh, the Flash one's actually quite rare. And very difficult to get hold of. Well, Desaad's got one. Can, can Desaad do that? Can he make them tangible? Because Darkseid yes. picks it up as if to say, it's not in the box, dude. It's <laughs> not mint. And card it. And then he goes and breaks it anyway. And then he goes and shatters it. In fact, you could so totally take that panel of Darkseid looking at the dollar and change the word balloons to say something like, it's not a mincing card and I'm not paying top dollar. <laughs> do you know if I had any skills in the Photoshop department, I would totally do that. Uh, Brimstone quotes Shelley's Ozymandias just a few months after Watchmen did the same thing. It's nice that Darkseid teaches the classics on Apocalypse, isn't it? Do they not burn them all? Gaze into my eyes, ye mighty, and despair. Which is a misquote. I was very impressed. Michael Dove bans the classics in the UK. Dark side teaches them. Dark side teaches the classics. <laughs> yes. Michael Gove takes them Michael off the Michael Gove curriculum. is worse than Dark side is the moral of this story. I am offering no political commentary on Michael Gove. The action set pieces opening the issues I thought were really quite good. Uh, whilst one can argue some of the exposition was a little clumsy, I at least knew who all these people were and what the deal was within a few choice word balloons. Whilst I understand the complaints, especially of comics like Clermont's X-Men, that the characters bring each other up to speed every issue, compare this to last week when new characters I didn't know received no introduction at all. There's got to be a comfortable middle ground. I prefer the way they do it now. What, just don't tell us who they are? Yeah. Right, (laughs) Right, so who's this guy? What's this guy's deal? It doesn't matter. Right, say you go to a party, you're not going to know everyone there, but does it matter? Not really. Not after a few beers. Well, there we go. Alright, fair enough. I like Firestorm's introduction. I like that he was in the shower, so that when he changes back to his normal person, he's going to be naked. Mm. (laughs) Which was was really funny. I thought the art with Firestorm was really good as well. I don't know a lot about Firestorm. quite like his his shtick, though, that he's two minds occupying one single body. Yeah. It's very Max Headroom. I like that. I thought it was an excellent introduction. Very well drawn, as well. Uh, it leads straight into a lovely little Flash sequence after Firestorm gets his head handed to him, um, where Flash fights Deadshot, who is awesome. I love Deadshot. I love his look. I love how cool he is. I love that the Flash beats the crap out of him with one punch. <laughs> one punch! Which was amusing. Andrea's is the story in the background, who was John Byrne's wife at the time, Andrea Brawl. And it was just, um, I thought this was really fast-paced opening. 
And that led into another opening action beat with Captain Marvel. I thought it was great. Mm. What did you think of the opening section of this crossover? No, I enjoyed it, but it was just set up, really. Yeah, well, that's issue one. It was no more just set up than Forever Evil 1. I mean, you could argue Forever Evil 1 thought, oh, let's not even bother with the setup. Forever Evil, Forever Evil 1 took place after the setup. Exactly, man. <laughs> so Forever Evil 1 didn't have a setup. There is that. I, I didn't see why Darkseid's just like. Was he bored or something? Yes! I got that. I got that Darkseid was bored one Darkseid day. Darkseid was bored, so he decides to. To, to eliminate all history of legends on Earth. Yeah, to just destroy On a planet that's got nothing to do with him. Only because he wants the planet. Well, it was Desard who brought it up. If it wasn't for Desard, not Yeah, this, this, this plot wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Well, maybe it was Desard that was bored. Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> it's entirely well, possible. What was going on with Darkseid in Crisis? Because he could see through Alexander Luthor's eyes mm. through his computer and then he just never mentioned that again. So Does that not get covered somewhere else? I don't know. I don't remember. So was this addressing the lack of Darkseid? Possibly, because he's the central antagonist. Even though he doesn't do anything. No, he just stands around the apocalypse. This is, this is just Glorious Godfrey's story. Yeah, but he's acting on behalf of Darkseid, so Darkseid's pulling the strings. Darkseid's centre sends to Palpatine. I don't think, think Darkseid's even pulling the strings here. Do you not? No. Why do you not think that? I'm reading it, and he doesn't seem to have that much of an input into He doesn't what's going seem on. that interested he in it. Doesn't care. Does he? He's like, well, it was Desard's baby, and I've got along with it, because, quite frankly, I've got nothing else to do today. Yeah. And now Godfrey's doing it. He's not doing a bad job, so I'm just going to let him get on with it. And I'm just going to watch. Darkseid just doesn't care. No, he's just not interested, really. I love that Macroman has MM on his belt, just in case he forgets who he is. Was Macroman in the Justice League in the second story? Because he looks very very similar to Galactus. Which Justice League second story? The the second story of the new Justice League. On the new 52 one? I have no idea. I I don't remember. I there's someone similar to him. Maybe. He does look a lot like Galactus. I presume he's a Jack Kirby creation. Oh, fair enough. Which would explain why he looks like Galactus. Uh, For me, the G. Gordon Godfrey plot was, by far, the most interesting part of the issue. I mean, the art's lovely and the fighting's great, but it's basically a Marvel idea, isn't it? Yeah. This is a Marvel Comics plot brought into the DC Universe... Which was novel at the time that they did it. Mm. There was at that point there was still a very clear marker stone between Marvel and DC, and it explores the idea of the power of the media, a relatively new topic at the time, and making the DC heroes into untrustworthy figures, which was not something traditionally associated with the DC universe at this time. Yeah. But the thing that I took away from reading this, although this hasn't gone down his history as being one of the better crossovers. In fact, it's barely remembered by all but the most ardent comics fans. There is an awful lot of this that has been mined in subsequent crossovers. Yeah. And Suicide Squad, this Suicide Squad stuff has been ripped off for Arrow recently. Mm. So there's an awful lot of it that's been used later, even though this series, I don't think, it's even in print anymore. Yeah. This scene here in the first issue of Captain Marvel saying Shazam, I'm burning the guy and killing him. That's how Forever Evil ends. Well, it's how it starts with Superman killing Dr. Light, Professor Light, that light guy. That light guy, yeah. Is that his name? It's Professor Light, isn't it? Oh, he was Dr. Light. The, the rapey guy. Okay, yeah, it's Dr. Light. Right. The rapey that, guy. He's not rapey anymore. Is that his but... defining characteristic now? Thanks, Brad Meltzer. He's not anymore. He's married and dead. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a common 
structure on marriage. <laughs> uh, the structure on page 10 I thought was particularly interesting. It's basically Changeling and Flash just having a gab in the uh, the Titans Tower. They've got a lovely setup, a big TV and sound system and lots of records because they won't have had CDs in 1986, will they? Well, they've just been coming out, aren't they? Mm. CDs. Everyone's still have had vinyl. And the angle of the frame remains the same with the background of the TV. But, not changing, sorry, but the image on the TV changes and what Gar and Wally are doing changes in each frame. I thought that was excellent storytelling in what could have been a really boring talking heads page. Yeah. You know, Bendis comment, that just would have been a close-up of Changeling, then a close-up of Flash, then a close-up of the TV, repeated four times down the page if with that, different dialogue. If that was a Bendis comic, that would be half the issue. <laughs> That's true, actually. There is enough dialogue on page ten <laughs> for five pages of a Bendis comic. Yeah. Isn't that? <laughs> and I love that you said that, not me. Yeah, everyone's speech bubble would just be, uh, um, uh, oh, well. Oh, God, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, the Captain Marvel scene's great. I really like the Captain Marvel scene. A marked contrast how Billy Batson was handled more recently. I didn't know he was a TV interviewer. I thought he... Oh, I thought he sold papers. I didn't know he worked on TV. How old is he? He's only supposed to be ten. I thought he had something to do with TV. All right. But I thought he was on it. That was quite interesting. Uh, like we say, that this is how he gets rid of Alexander Luther in Forever Evil. Uh, the Task Force X stuff is great. Love Amanda Waller. Yeah. I think Amanda Walla Walla. Walla Walla. Walla. I think she's absolutely fantastic in this series generally, in this page to begin with. This little short woman in Colonel Flagg's face. I think she's brilliant. I really am not happy with the way they've changed her recently. I think she was fantastic. Yeah. I think she was fantastic when she was like this. Mm. Don't give me no grief, dude. She even got all up in Batman's face. Yeah. Which was always amusing. Cosmic Boy's having a coffee. Yeah. And, uh... This drink. I like it. Another. <laughs> um, I liked it. I love the idea as well that there's a Time Institute guide for the casual traveller. <laughs> I love that somebody's written that book. Can I have a copy? Dude, it's not the future yet. Just so I can have it on the shelf. I mean, is it like... Is it a bestseller like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Or the, or the Sports Almanac. <laughs> Yeah, Marty McFly and Dot Brown have copies everywhere. Cosmic Boy gets him into a fight with Brimstone. He doesn't make any better a job of it than Firestorm does. No, no. To be to be fair, he gets his head handed to him, quite frankly. Again, in a modern comic, he'd have had his arm ripped off, probably. Don't send a Legioner in to do a man's job. Yeah, and who the hell are the Justice League? Um, the Who are these guys? I was, I was actually surprised to see Vibe in there, because I didn't know he was... As old as he was. He's been reintroduced, hasn't he? Name's yeah. Vibe, amigo. They call me the elongated man. I don't know why he talks like Shaft. <laughs> <laughs> Got a very deep voice, the elongated yeah, yeah, yeah. man. I know who he is. Yeah. Oh, it's like John Johns, the Martian Manhunter. I know him. Yeah. Obviously. There's Vixen there. I'm Vixen. I don't know who Vixen is. I know who Vixen was. Oh, right, from okay. Brad Meltzer's. Oh, yeah. Show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From um, Identity Crisis. Yeah. Right. I answer to Gypsy. I love the different ways Len Wein has had to come up with to say, I'm. Yeah. This is who I am. <laughs> he just had a wall full of notes. <laughs> um, yeah, so I didn't know who she was, did you? No. You know who she is? Okay. My code name is Steel. I vaguely remember him from somewhere. Yeah, um, Kirby. 
and who oh, yeah. he worked with. Yeah. 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 I only yeah. know that because of adverts from the reprints. Right. Okay. And everybody's favourite nuclear man makes it an uneven baker's half dozen, which is great. And I'm sure they're all lovely. I've got no problem with Firestorm, certainly not with John Johns. They're, that's not the Justice... Is that the Justice B League? Uh, it's the backup league. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> the real league were busy today. Uh, you know the, the West Coast Avengers? Yes. This is DC's equivalent. <laughs> the West Coast Justice League. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. There's a really funny line on the last page as well. He was killed, incinerated up on the roof by a guy in a bright red suit. He was murdered by Santa Claus? Come on, that was funny. Or I thought it was. I thought that was very, very amusing. I honestly thought this was a great first issue. I think we've been a bit more whimsical about yeah. it than perhaps we should have been. It moves from action scene to action scene with burly appalls. It may seem a little frenetic, but this is a plot-driven series. That's not to say characters don't get a look in. Ostranda and Wayne layer in a number of decent character moments, from Cosmic Boy's delight at newsprint rubbing off on his hands to Wally's concerns over filling Barry Allen's boots, to Captain Marvel's concern over killing somebody tonally. It's solid action-adventure fur with a few nuggets for the mind to chew on. And it's all magnificently rendered by Byrne and Kiesel, who look completely different here to how they look on the Superman titles. There's a scratchy look to the art that is nevertheless pleasing to the eye and everybody looks on model and delightful. An excellent beginning. If we miss something by not reading the Batman preludes, I certainly didn't notice. Yeah. Did you? No. Excellent. Good. What did you think of it? No, I enjoyed it, but um, reading it now, it just felt a lot like Final Crisis. This I was Final Crisis. Yeah, that's one of the things I noticed reading through it this time, how much of this has been mined by subsequent series Yeah, that maybe weren't as good, and yet this is largely forgotten, like I said. It's certainly not like Crisis on Infinite Earths or Secret Wars it or anything. Not in Crisis's Shadow? Very possibly. And Crisis finished at this point? Yeah, 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 yeah. Crisis was over. It's about six months to a year after Crisis. Well, there's an ad in this scene... Um, issue 7 of Crisis no, isn't there? no 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 I don't think so anyway we'll look at the adverts and we'll we'll see to that there's a couple of adverts for chocolate uh, Legends yeah the cover to Legends 1 in the adverts isn't painted or watercoloured or whatever and the other one's the Detective Comics by Klaus Janssen which we already mentioned earlier on the, the DC Comics Who's Who Vigilante got an annual I liked Vigilante I thought Vigilante was quite cool. He was introduced in the new Teen Titans. Mask gets a chunky... We had that card, didn't we? We had that toy card and the figures that went in it. It gets a big, chunky pull-out. Glossy in the middle. It's a Mask comic strip by Joe Orlando and Joey Cavallari. Did you read this? No. No, neither did I. Uh, But the Mask toys look pretty cool. Although it has to be said, and with no disrespect to the young models that are in the centre spread of this comic... I hope they grew up and never showed those pictures to anybody. <laughs> because they are quite terrible <laughs> catalogue pictures, aren't they? Yeah. Truly horrible. Some of the mass toys do look really cool. And like Michael said, we did have the uh, the red car at some point. I don't know where we got that from. Uh, specials and annual sales of the Teen Titans annual number four was out, as was the Legion of Superheroes annual number four. A multi-layered murder mystery, apparently. I wonder if it explains who murdered Cosmic Boy's fashion sense. <laughs> Summer's here and the time is right for DC Comics, is a subscription ad. And Batman Year One was so important, it's advertised twice. 
in the same Just issue. Just so you know. Uh, there is a black and white advert on the interior of the cover, which never happens. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. That's a callback. Uh, but I love that advert. That is one of the best Batman adverts ever. David Bazzicelli art of him stood there holding the cape in one hand while it drapes over him in the other. He's strong, smart and relentless. Shrewd and cunning. A powerful fighter. The best detective the world has ever seen. The very best. But at what price? Coming soon, Batman, Year One. A four-part story by Frank Miller and David Mazzuelli. Great advert, that. It's in colour on the letters page, if you want to see yeah. it in colour. But I actually think it's better in black and white. Yeah. Isn't it? Absolutely brilliant. I didn't see an advert for Crisis. Maybe it was a later issue. Well, we shall check. All right. Because this is 80s comics, and adverts are cool <laughs> in 80s comics. Except the one of young boys in their <laughs> underwear. Made me feel a little uncomfortable. <laughs> but maybe that's just me. From here, the story picked up in Green Lantern Corps, Volume 1, Issue 207, covered dated December 1986, and entitled Simple Minds. Then we're back into Legends Issue 2, covered dated December 1986, and called Breach of Faith. This cover features Superman, Batman, Green Lantern, Guy Gardner version, and Blue Beetle back-to-back in a circle as an angry mob advances upon them. Not painted, which is disappointing, but still visually interesting as Burns' faces are really quite good here. Batman is grim, Superman looks a little bit sad, and Guy Gardner just looks pissed off. But that's Guy's standard facial expression. Yeah. I think, do you like that cover? Uh, yeah. There's, there's a lot more detail in it than the last one. Yeah, I think it's a really good cover. And all those, John Byrne doesn't draw different faces, critics. Every single one of those faces is different. Yeah. Actually, really, really impressive cover. I like that Batman isn't as big as Superman. Mm. In the muscular department. G. Gordon Godfrey continues to spew hatred onto the airwaves as Billy Batson swerves off being Captain Marvel after supposedly killing Macro Man. However, Macro Man's death was all orchestrated by Darkseid to cause unrest and ultimately distrust in the world's heroes. The Phantom Stranger, who was dropped by Apocalypse for a coffee, informs Darkseid that this plan, like that of all fascists, is doomed to fail. Also, they've messed up his latter, and can he have a different one? On Earth, though, Godfrey's hate bears fruit. The Urzats Justice League continue to fight Brimstone, the Batman and Robin prevent an armed robbery, Blue Beetle prevents a mugging, and Guy Gardner stops a plane crashing in the streets. But in all instances, the crowd turn ugly and against our heroes, leading all to flee, and even Batman forced to retreat without Robin. Colonel Rick Flagg recruits Deadshot for Task Force X, Cosmic Boy tries to find the woman he loves, and Superman is witness to a presidential decree outlawing all superheroic activity. And just before it gets darker, it goes completely black, when the beaten and bloody form of Robin is found dumped in an alleyway. G. Gordon Godfrey wrote a book called Superhero or Super Menace. Within the span of time between issue one and issue two, Firstly, does J. Jonah Jameson know this guy has stolen his shtick? You'd think Jonah would have that copyright. Yeah. I would have thought. Maybe he does in the Marvel Universe. But in the DC Universe, not so much. Yeah. Well, in the DC Universe, he's just a comics character, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, how quickly does one get a book written and published in the DCU? Maybe they already got it done back on, on Apocalypse. Yeah, but how did they get it out there to so many people to, for it to be on the bestseller list so quickly? Through dark side publishing and bribes. <laughs> Through the crisis. Yes. 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 
<laughs> Crisis on Infinite Earth. Darkseid just used it to throw it through books out into the time stream. And, and hope someone found them. And bought them. Yeah, I, I was always confused by the dialogue on page two as a kid. The, um, a young woman and her husband and their two children, who will become important as we go through the story... Uh, are watching G. Gordon Godfrey spew his hate. One, I want to know why everyone in this comic series TV is on the floor. Yeah. Because the Teen Titans was as well. You know the four TV cabinets. <laughs> and secondly, when the guy says, man, he has a point. The little girl says, yeah, on top of his head. Which, I took that as a kid to mean he was a dickhead. <laughs> right. Is that a valid interpretation? I, I guess. Because I don't... I don't... Other than that, is he a rhino? I didn't get what she was saying either. Oh, right, okay. So that's, that was... As a child reading this, that's what I thought she was implying. As a child, you yeah. thought she meant dickhead. Yeah, yeah. Well, how old was I in 1986 when this came out? I don't know, was I 14? Something like that. I'll have been 14 years old. I thought she meant dickhead, yeah? That's not a word of a lie. Because my, my impression of it was... She said that in front of her parents. <laughs> So, you know, did you not get that interpretation? No, I didn't, I didn't get what she was saying. Oh, right, okay. Maybe that's just me then. <laughs> Maybe that was just more a more commonly used playground insult when I was Fair a enough. kid than it is nowadays. Our swearing was more creative than yours is. Uh, yeah. I think. Uh, I did like the scene. I thought it was very interesting how Godfrey's playing the crowd. Adults mean cool, cynical adults believe the world has lost its need for simplistic heroes whilst kids see through Godfrey's bile easily. I found it interesting that it was Jack Kirby's creations that were essentially bringing this Marvel sensibility into a DC book. Maybe that's why the story worked. We weren't used to seeing this level of distrust in the populace of a DC comic. We're also getting a neat little commentary on mob mentality, especially the myopic viewpoint of the guy who says, those costume crumb bombs ain't never done nothing for me, which presumably ignores all the time that he was saving the world. Was he not, though? <laughs> was he off planet when they've saved the world from the crisis on infinite Earths? Oh, well, no one ever said blind hatred was logical, did they? Burns drawing a dark side is magnificent throughout this entire book, especially when he laughs. Yeah. I love his face when he laughs. Absolutely great. And I love all of Darkseid's obsequious toadies. Excellent, Master Darkseid. You are fantastic. That is an excellent coffee, Master Darkseid. Ignore what the Phantom Stranger says. There is not too much sugar in it, Master Darkseid. I make fantastic lattes. <laughs> do you think Darkseid does make his own lattes? Or do you think he has a lackey? I think he has a lackey to do it. <laughs> do you think there's an entire chain of coffee stores on Apocalypse just called Darksides? Yeah. Every other shop's a Darksides dark coffee shop. coffee. <laughs> W.H. Darkside. Uh, Bed, Bed, Bath and Darkside. Darkside strikes me as someone who drinks his coffee black. Yes. With nothing in it. Whereas, whereas, <laughs> Full of hatred. Yes. Whereas the Phantom Stranger looks very much to me like one of those ponces who drinks those little cups. <laughs> those tiny little coffees. They're espressos. Yeah. That's Phantom Stranger. And he's complained about it. That's my thinking. That's why he's so uptight. It's because he put full fat milk in there he and not soy. <laughs> Yes, yes, that's... Phantom Strangers, he's such a hipster. Yes, well, that's what I'm saying. That's why he has those little cups. Yeah. And he has his little finger out when he drinks. And he brings his Apple Mac with him. Yes. To work on his novel. He brings his Apple Mac with him, and his iPod, and his iPhone, <laughs> and his Blackberry. He has them all laid out at the side of him. Why do you want an iPhone and a, and a Blackberry? Because he's a Phantom Stranger. He's, he's texting to lots of people. Yes. A little life he's keeping <laughs> well, away from. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's got the phone for his fur. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> you know nothing. With the Phantom Mistress. Yes! 
Do we have a phantom mistress? I don't know. That would be magnificent <laughs> if there was the phantom mistress. And she, she has a completely different observing power. Yeah. <laughs> it mostly revolves around cheap motels. <laughs> where you pay by the hour. <laughs> Uh, a production problem with the Phantom Stranger's dialogue on page 6. The apostrophe S is missing. It just says, What you perceive as chaos is actually life's great richness. It infinite variety. It should say it's. Okay. And uh, the Phantom Stranger is obviously a subscriber to the Star Trek theory of infinite diversity in infinite combinations. That's basically what he's saying, isn't it? Yeah. Phantom Stranger's... I like the Phantom Stranger. I particularly like how he's drawn. I'm, I'm in pretty this sure issue. a while ago in one episode you said you never liked the Phantom Stranger. I've changed my mind. Okay. I like the Phantom Stranger. I'm allowed to do that. I'm Mercurial. I like the Phantom Stranger in this story. Yeah. I like that basically this is what the Phantom Stranger does best. He just kind of shows up as a coffee that he doesn't pay for. Yeah. And basically just needles Darkseid all the way through the story. I did wonder why Darkseid didn't just backhand him at some point. They seem to have this kind of mutual respect thing going on, I don't, don't think they? he can backhand him. <laughs> Oh, that was a bit strange. The fans of Strange are just there on Apocalypse and Darkseid's tolerating him. Doctor Doom would not have tolerated that. Yeah. If that Phantom Stranger had shown up in Latveria, Doom would have clad him in irons before the first page was over. Well, isn't he not physical? I don't know. I don't know if he's, he is in this issue, because um, he never interacts with anybody, does he? So maybe he's not. I don't know. On page seven, the cinema behind Brimstone is showing Brother Power the Geek the movie. Which I thought was was quite amusing. When I'm reading this, I am so hearing Clint Eastwood as Rick Flagg and Walton Goggins as Floyd Lawton. Do you want me to do one of my painted impressions? Go on then. Alright, well to do Walton Walton Goggins, I have to do this. Why, Cousin Johnny, have you ever known me to be inarticulate? Alright, here we go. You're Floyd Lawton, a.k.a. Deadshot. And what if I am? Don't tell me I won the lottery again. I'm Colonel Rick Flagg. If you are Lawton, I have an offer to make you. A little job that has to be done. If you accept the assignment, complete the assignment, and survive the assignment, all current charges against you will be immediately dismissed. Well, just supposing I say yes, flyboy. What's to stop me from pulling a vanishing act the second I'm back in harness? Well, for one thing, my friend here will be forced to rip off both your legs and beat you to death with him. And this job's dangerous, you say? In a word... It's suicide. I love that page. Yeah. It's just the right mix of macho swagger from Colonel Flagg and just the right amount of um, non-plus nonchalance mm. from Floyd Lawton. He's like, he knows he's interested because he doesn't want to get sent down or spend more time in jail. Yeah. But at the same time, he doesn't want Colonel Flagg to know he's interested. I love that. I think that page is absolutely brilliant. But I, I like Deadshot and I like yeah. Floyd Lawton. And I've always been a fan of Deadshot ever since Deadshot Ricochet. Robin is set upon by an angry mob, yours truly angry mob. Jason never did have much luck. And Batman has perfume hurled in his face. Why did the perfume affect Batman if he's got his protective lenses on, but his protective lenses conveniently disappear on the bottom of page 14? So that we can see he's got his eyes closed. Maybe they smudged. Maybe... The bottle of perfume nod, nudged them yeah. and dislodged them I, I, and yeah. then they went behind the lenses and into his eyes. Yeah. No prize explanation. Batman looks exceptionally good in a pink mask, uh, uh, yeah. which is uh, an episode of the Batman TV series where he wears a pink mask. Okay. Yeah. So Batman can wear pink yeah. and no one thinks it's odd. If, yeah. 
I, I do like how they both decide to just leave Jason. No, no, one, no one liked Jason. No, not even Commissioner Gordon liked Jason. Nobody likes Jason at all. Is that Gwen Stacy on the top of page thirteen? It could be with a lovely little headband on and Norman Osborn underneath her. <laughs> Blue Beetle is drawn to look more like Spider Man, something that would become a trademark from the character. And the guy Gardner bit was actually really cool. I like Guy. Yeah. He's an asshole. But he's, he's my kind of asshole. I, uh, I never really got into Guy. I, I do like the bit later on where he, he makes the guy blow his own leg off. <laughs> oh, well, we'll get to that. Yeah. I've got some uh, some notes about that. Yeah, I, I like Guy Gardner in this series. He doesn't come across as too obnoxious. Yeah. But he's obviously a guy who's just got no time for for fools and, and idiots, which uh, I quite like. There's a reference to us burning down the White House in 1840, which is still the only historical example of an invading force successfully taking the USA's capital. Did you know that? I don't know. The War of 1812 through 1814, which ultimately led to the peace treaty between us, Canada, and the United States that is still in place today, the Treaty of Ghent. Right. Do you not get taught the British Empire at school? Uh, we just get taught Romans, Victorians. And um, World War One and Two. That's only if we get far enough. Oh, dear God. You know, that's absolutely shocking. Anyway, uh, that that particular war led to the writing of Star Spangled Banner. Yeah. Did you know that? I did not know that either. Yeah, you know, see. Uh, but we're not a history podcast, so we'll move on. One of the few times in a comic book we have ever seen the presiding US president I think we saw Kennedy didn't we yeah in um, in an issue of Superman that was published just around the time that he died which was most unfortunate but here President Ronald Reagan conferring with Superman normally they're blanked out aren't they well we've seen Obama yeah well I think I was this the we've seen Gordon Brown God yeah Gordon Brown's been on a comic as well hasn't yeah. was this the precedent because um, George Bush Sr. is there as well. Yeah. So you've actually got Reagan's cabinet. I don't know how I think about this. Um, I think I prefer the more ambiguous approach, because this makes it a period piece. I guess. It? And you do have a certain amount of people out there who'll be going, well, if, if Superman was there when President Reagan was in office, then he's at least 55 now. Shut up. But I, I like it when they do that. Do you? Yeah. Right. It grounds it, and even though it makes it a period piece, sometimes that can help it. Help the reader contextualise it more. Alright, okay. Like, All right, that's not a bad point. You see, we're reading it going, well, they've done that in Final Crisis and Forever Evil, but having something that grounds it in its own time. So it's very definitely of the 80s. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. I, I had not considered that point of view. So that's. Yeah, alright, I'll go with that. That's fine. Uh, Robin is beaten half to death on the last page. <laughs> Oh, the Joker beat them to it. Yeah, there's a shaft of wood with F.A.R. on it. Can you see there? I wonder if that's a nod to Frank Miller and the Dark Knight Returns. Could be. It could very well be. But like you said, nobody ever liked Jason, so nobody could. Yeah. Then he got beaten half to death. <laughs> Before being beaten fully to death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was a dry run. <laughs> DC was seeing if it went well. We'll do it for real. <laughs> He's either fine or he's beaten to death. The only, the only middle ground is being beaten half to death. Yes, poor poor Jason. Oh, I felt a little bit sorry for him in this story because he's not a jerk. Uh, it was a good <laughs> issue. Because he's in the hospital. Yeah, for most of it. <laughs> I, I, 
like this one. Again, I thought it was, there's some elements of, um, of marvelling of the DC Universe, but again, that's why this story works. It was new, and it's prefiguring some elements that would come into play later, such as Robin's beating, as we've just took the mick out of, because there's nothing funny than an underage child being beaten to death. <laughs> and even elements that would be part of Civil War. Yeah. Did you swig that with the, the president saying, um, no more heroes? Yeah. Anymore as The Clash would put it. It's very reminiscent of a Fantastic Four story Burn did with the hate monger in 1984. The art's great. Was it not The Stranglers? No, more. yeah, you're probably right. Wow, you know you're punk better than me <laughs> now. I know. I've taught you well, young Padawan. Uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, President Reagan's actually, actually got a very decent facelift. <laughs> it looks quite a bit younger in this. If I was him, I'd have been quite happy with John Byrne's depiction of it. I wonder if he had to give his likeness permission. Because actors have to, don't they? Well, he is an actor. And he was an actor, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how that works. Because he's a public figure. Can yeah. you just insert him in your story and it not matter? I guess. Alright, okay, fair enough. One would imagine, if I was a president, yeah. highly unlikely, <laughs> <laughs> but were I a president and I got to appear in a DC comic book, I would want that original artwork. Yeah. I would say, yeah, you put me in it, but I want the original art. And I'd have it on the wall, because I think that would be awesome. What did you think of issue two? Uh, I liked it, but... Is, is everything you are going to say going to be, I liked it, but... Yeah, because I did enjoy it, but a lot of the series felt like it was just individual plots that didn't have much of a connection. Uh, they all come together at the end. Even, the, even the Suicide Squad stuff, which at the moment is off on its own. Yeah. It does all come together at the end, which I quite like. And Superman's just really boring, in it? He just stands around the well, house. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, Superman was only inserted in at a last-minute replacement for Wonder Woman. Now, I don't know whether they changed the plot. What Wonder Woman would be doing at the White House, I don't know. To me, it makes more sense that it's Superman. Yeah. But... He's not really a major part of the plot because they didn't think they had him. Yeah, I just I think if you're going to have Superman in your story, either do something with him. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't have him just lying around in the White House. Say, Mister President, I think you should do this. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Um, adverts in this one aren't terribly interesting. The annuals, Green Lantern Core Annual Number Two by the original writer and um, Denny O'Neill. Although he's not the original writer of Green Lantern, but he obviously wouldn't want his name on it. And outside is annual number one, uh, which it looks like it has a painted cover as well, which looks quite interesting. Uh, NBC have some TV shows. Kissy Fur. Never heard of it. Sounds like a porn star. <laughs> Disney's Adventures of the Gummy Bears. I thought Gummy Bears were sweet. Disney picks up the rights for them. Smurfs. Well, I know what Smurfs is. Punky Brewster. Was Punky Brewster a cartoon? Apparently so. I thought Punky Brewster was a live action TV show with Solly L. Moonfry. And the guy from the Police Academy movies. Alvin and the Chipmunks, now starring uh, Jason Lee. Foofa? Is that a spelling mistake? It looks like Clifford the Big Blue Dog. It does, doesn't it? Uh, kid video? No, no clue. And Once to Grow One is apparently hosted by Michael J. Fox. So that was NBC's lineup for for this fall of whatever year this was, 1986. Cosmic Boy gets his own four-issue miniseries. Which is the only reason why he's in this. Uh, yeah, probably. I would have thought they thought they could spin him off into his own four-issue miniseries on the back of the success of this. Oh, just flicking through it, him catching the aeroplane in the Green Lantern hand is brilliant and very reminiscent of Star Trek. Legends crossovers gets an advert. Again, the subscription ad, um, but Batman Year One doesn't, sadly. 
Following this, the story continued into Cosmic Boy number one, cover dated December 1986, entitled Those Who Will Not Learn the Lessons of History. Justice League of America issue 258, cover dated January 1987, entitled The End of the Justice League of America, Saving Face. Secret Origins volume 2, issue 10, covered the origin of the Phantom Stranger. And Firestorm, the Nuclear Man issue 55, was the stench of brimstone. Legends issue 3, cover dated January 1987, and entitled Send for the Suicide Squad, has a John Byrne cover. On it, the Suicide Squad tackle brimstone on Mount Rushmore as symbolic floaty heads of Superman, Batman, Changeling, and the Flash look on. Did you like that one? Yeah. Good. I like that one. I was a bit upset that Mark Rushmore didn't have General Zod's face on it. <laughs> Kneel before Zod. As the heroes all reel from the shock presidential edict, the Suicide Squad are sent on their first mission to take down Brimstone at Mount Rushmore. Despite the bravado of the team, their first battle, a literal baptism by fire, is not going well. Bruce Wayne checks in on Jason, recovering from his beating, who feels that the angry mob knew exactly what they were doing. Bruce can't bring himself to believe that and is determined to prove it, even if it means violating a presidential order. Back at Mount Rushmore, the squad have a secret weapon, a laser rifle that, if aimed correctly, will disrupt the magnetic fields that give Brimstone's hydrogen plasma configuration human form. Sure, it made sense somewhere. With Blockbuster running cover, Deadshot takes aim, but Brimstone kills Blockbuster before Deadshot can take the shot. Deadshot lines up again, isolating the magnetic nexus and fires, causing Brimstone to cease to be. Billy Batson, meanwhile, lost and alone, has met young Lisa Sutton, and she invites him home for tea. It doesn't go very well as Daddy Sutton is buying into G. Gordon Godfrey's BS, causing Billy to flee the house. Lisa follows, but when she confronts Billy about if he even believes in heroes anymore, he replies he doesn't know. And in the fiery realm of Apocalypse, Darkseid watches with glee as Operation Humiliation enters Part 3, the release of the Warhounds. It's a porn film called Operation Humiliation. Uh, this <laughs> issue is very interestingly structured. The main body of the tale takes up the first three quarters of each page and progresses from beginning to end. However, the bottom panel of every page has Desad, Darkseid and the Phantom Stranger, still supping their coffee, monitor the events on the retro screen whilst recapping the plot for the readers before the final splash page in which Darkseid takes over the narrative to introduce the Warhounds. It's quite an interesting storytelling device. It's largely redundant basically telling the reader stuff they already know, but it's better than putting all the exposition into the main narrative. They also bring us up to speed with what's going on in the Cosmic Boy and Justice League books. However, I didn't actually feel that it worked. No, I didn't. What did you think was wrong with it? Well, I was reading it properly. Yeah. For the first few pages until it started getting really hard following both narratives. So then I just decided, once I realised that the dark side stuff was just recaps anyway, hmm. I just didn't bother reading it at all until the last page. Right, see, I read it, I read all the top three quarters of a page, and then I went back and read the bottom bit. Yeah. And it works much better like that. And I can see what they were going for, hmm. but it doesn't work, does it? It's like you say, it's just, it's like you're trying to read two books at the same time. Yeah. And you read a page one and then a page one other, and you just lose track of the plot that you're following and while it was interesting and it was a good way of delivering all the exposition without slowing down the main story no I, I agree with you I don't think it worked although the last page of Darkseid standing with the Warhounds is excellent mm. I thought Billy Batson 
in one of those coincidences that happen all the time in comics, runs into the young girl from last issue who called G. Gordon Godfrey a dickhead. (laughs) At least that's what I think she called him, and I'm sticking with that. Following the presidential edict last issue, Sergeant Steele has been sent to babysit the Teen Titans, which in this issue just seems to consist of Changeling and the Flash. Where's Nightwing and Starfire and all the others? Are they off planet or something? I guess. Well, it's not like these two stay here for long. No, they just... Does anyone obey this presidential edict apart from Superman? Does everyone just get asked for it? I think Superman only obeys it because he's in the White House. Yeah, so he doesn't have much choice, really. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, damn, if I wasn't here. Uh, Burns' preferred trick of having his characters walk on panel borders is seen here on two consecutive pages. One could see this at a poke in the eye of Jim Shooter, who, according to Byrne, forbade him from doing that. Mm. Apparently, Shooter didn't like it. I don't know why. I think it's pretty cool. When they're actually stood on as if the panel border was the floor. Yeah. I always thought that was a pretty cool technique, to be honest with you. Uh, The Suicide Squad get sent on their first mission, consisting in this form of Deadshot, Blockbuster, two Batman adversaries, Captain Boomerang, a Flash Rogue, the Bronze Tiger, the Enchantress, who used to fight Thor, but this is the DC version, and Colonel Flag, who we met last issue. I knew the Enchantress. What was she, what's she been in recently? Uh, the DC Enchantress. She was in Flashpoint. Yeah, so she was. And yeah. was in Justice League Dark. She doesn't really wear a very practical top. She was even less of one. It has to be said. She's wearing like a green cloak dressing gown thing that is open all the way to her belt. And again, you know, if you're fighting men, I suppose it is a good way of keeping them distracted. Yeah. But, yeah, okay. Well, those those tights she's wearing underneath that very short skirt. She's yeah, not but at least, that anymore. At least she not. No. All right. So I was going to say, at least she's covered up though. No. Is she not anymore? Right. Just a short skirt then. Yeah. Captain Kirk's reaction to Blockbuster is hysterical, given that the name of the group is the Suicide Squad. Yeah. Catch up. <laughs> Granted, he is cocky and overconfident, so he probably never actually thought anyone would die. Blockbuster's death isn't quite the big character deaths of Crisis on Infinite Earths, but it doesn't really have to be to get the point across. He did seem the most expendable coming across in this issue as just a carbon copy of the Incredible Hulk, Mm. didn't he? And I would love, if we have any Australian listeners, I would love them to write in to tell us whether Captain Boomerang's dialogue is (laughs) as awful as whenever they write a British character. It, it, it was pretty awful. And <laughs> come on, Cobber! <laughs> That's pretty... Every other word is, come on, Cobber! Hey, Blue! Although Captain Boomerang was just pretty enough in this. I quite like him. Uh, Terrible dialogue. I mean, it may be an authentic representation of Australian dialect. Such a horrible costume as He well. does have a terrible costume. He does look like he's in a hostess. He, he, he does, doesn't yeah. he? <laughs> like now the ancient ways are there, there, and there. And if you give me any grief, Cobber, I'll hear a boomerang and chop your head off. Unless he throws the boomerangs out the doors. And then, and then I'm expecting just a Monty Python skit. You mean you're not called Bruce? Yeah, be confusing. I apologise for my accent, but I'm not writing a comic starring a guy from Australia. So I'd love to know if that was genuine or if it was. Uh, mirth-making to any Australian readers. The dynamics of the Suicide Squad are really well played out. Boomerang rails against Flag, saying that they're just cannon fodder. Again, I refer you to the name of the group. 
until Flag points out that he's expendable as well. For some reason, Boomerang goes, oh yeah, I didn't think of that. Yeah. Again, I refer you to the name of the group. Even then, back when they hired them, it was sold on if you survived the mission. Yeah, and it's like, what part of that did Captain Boomerang not understand? Yeah. Maybe he's just not very bright. You're going to get to throw boomerangs, mate? All right. (laughs) Cobba. He has to say that every other word. Apparently it was the only slang from Australia, Lem, we knew. (laughs) Bronze Tiger apparently is only there to keep the Enchantress in line. And she gets high on her magical energies. And he takes her out with a Vulcan nerve pinch. I didn't know that was a part of a tiger's power set. It is not. That they can do a nerve pinch. I thought they just bit the nerves out. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in a more up-to-date comic, he probably would have just bitten her head off. Yeah. Wouldn't he? And we would have seen it in all its Oh, no, she's getting slightly angry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the young lass that Billy met is called Lisa Sutton, and she invites Billy home for tea with her parents. Another burnism. Back in the FF, Burn always drew Franklin with one leg in the air to indicate youthful exuberance, and it's a tradition he carries on here with Lisa's brother. As seeded earlier, it's the belief of children that will turn this around, but with both Jason Todd and Billy Batson wavering, it does look like Darkseid's making a little bit of progress. Mm. Only a little bit. Especially given that Darkseid doesn't seem to give a damn. He's just watching over his coffee. Yeah. Uh, again, I think it was fully enjoyable. It was really entertaining. If this series lacks the necessary world-ending grandeur of crisis, it makes up for it by being a smaller, more personal story. There are interesting parallels with the rise of fascism in Germany in the late 1930s and a very it-couldn't-happen-here vibe to the proceedings but wrapped up in a decent and entertaining superhero fable. The art is lovely, again, more scratchy than Bern Kiesel normally look, but it fits into the story being told. There's no feeling of being lost, no not knowing who people are, and all around it's entertaining. It doesn't really feel important enough yeah. to be a big event unless... Dark Side was important enough to constitute being an event in 1986. I, think, I don't know. I think everything Dark Side was in was an event, just well, like Thanos. Yeah, maybe that's all it was then. Maybe the fact that Dark Side wasn't overexposed mm. was enough to make it an event. Adverts: At last, the greatest hero in comics by the greatest talents in comics. Superman: The Adventures of Superman and <laughs> Superman in Action. Comics by John Byrne, Terry Austin, Dick Giordano, Marv Wolfman, and Jerry Ordway, the beginning of the From Crisis to Crisis era of Superman. Wolverine's in it in a comic book advert. Wolverine sneaks into a DC comic. He gets everywhere, doesn't he? Idiot. The Legends crossover page mentions uh, the comics that I've already told us about. What has Matt Wagner done to the Demon? A four-issue miniseries coming in the fall. And that's pretty much it. Although I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention the Karate Kid action figures and play sets that are on the back of this comic. Uh, the letters page is interesting in that it's placing Man of Steel up there with Watchmen and Dark Knight. Something that kind of seems to have fallen by the wayside in recent years. And Swamp Thing is mentioned as being as good as Teen Titans. Next up came Cosmic Boy issue 2 from January 1987, his history destiny. Justice League of America issue 259 from February 1987 was the end of the Justice League of America homecoming. Firestorm the Nuclear Man issue 56 from February 1987, Firestorm No More. And Blue Beetle volume 6 issue 9 February 1987 was called Time Peace. We then bop straight back 
to Legends issue 4 from February of 1987 entitled Cry Havoc the cover has G. Gordon Godfrey burning the heroes in effigy including Black Canary who hasn't featured in the series so far it's a provocative image conjuring up images of witch hunts throughout history I like it I like that G. Gordon Godfrey looks like he's maniacal That's totally what he's doing there, isn't it? Yeah. As he burns effigies of uh, the DC... I don't like that he's burned the heads off. And nothing else. <laughs> yeah, making them look like the Dread Dormammu. <laughs> That's quite amusing. Do you like the cover? Yeah. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? It's all right, but... <laughs> In Star City, two cops, Andy and Joey, navigate the burning landscape, only to be confronted by Count Vertigo. Dazed and confused, they are rescued by Black Canary, only to have Joey turn on her, accusing her of violating the presidential edict. Andy prevents his partner from firing, but in the ensuing scuffle, Joey kills his partner and, in shock, blames vigilantes and heroes. Elsewhere, Darkseid smiles. The Phantom Stranger warns him that the fires of legends are not so easily extinguished, and can I have another one of those nice lattes, please, and offers up the warlord of Skataris as proof. Darkseid dispatches Desard to destroy that particular legend and thus a crossover cometh. In Gotham, the Batman violates orders to put the Joker out for the night, whilst in LA, Guy Gardner does the same, preventing a robbery. Blue Beetle in Chicago isn't quite as fortunate, and police intervention allows Kronos, the time thief, to make a getaway. The situation proves so grave, Kent Nelson once again gives himself over to absolute pleasure, letting Dr. Fate commandeer his body to enter the fray. The Flash and Changeling in New York, meantime, encounter Captain Boomerang, who has been released from Task Force X after successful completion of their mission, only to encounter a war hound. Glorious Godfrey continues to lather up the people in Gotham, using the heroes that are disobeying the presidential edict as proof of what he says, that they flagrantly disregard the law they supposedly represent, before turning upon the government, who have also asked for his apprehension. Godfrey unleashes more war hounds, promising a new justice. Back in Apocalypse, the Phantom Stranger warns that Superman is still the greatest force for good on Earth, and to combat this, Darkseid banishes the Man of Steel to Apocalypse. Uh, the opening scene of this issue was actually quite dark, in that Black Canary violating the presidential edict led to the death of a cop, and it's not explored at all. Mm. There's no real ramifications for this. Now, I'm not absolving Officer Joey for this, in any way, that the blood is purely on his hands, but that it could lead to this was genuinely dark stuff for this time period. Probably nothing for you, but at the time, this was quite heady stuff, especially as we've not been given any indication yet that mind control is in place here. Yeah. We're not, have we? We've not been told yet, that comes later, that G. Gordon Godfrey's voice yeah. has the power to corrupt people. Which I thought was quite subtle. If you didn't know that and I didn't remember it, it's just the feeling that G. Gordon Godfrey is planting these seeds in people's heads, but it turns out his voice has a hypnotic quality. Yeah. But at the moment, we don't know that. So the implication is it's just all down to Godfrey's silver tongue and gift of the gab. I'm interested in these characters. I'm interested in this opening sequence. How does Canary feel about this? What about Joey? How does she go on when all this is over and he has to live with the fact that he killed his partner? Sadly, I didn't get any answers. Yeah, I, I didn't really like him anyway. Did you not? No, there's, there's blaming someone else and then there's blaming someone else. This was all on him. Yeah. No, no, that's what I'm saying. I'm not absolving him of any guilt. It had nothing to do with Black Canary. No, but G. Gordon Godfrey's 
stirring the pot. Yeah, but he still shot his partner. Yeah, he did. Um, that's true. But his partner was stopping him from following orders. The guy, Joey, was right to do what he was doing. Black Canary's violating a presidential edict. So you just shoot your partner for having a different opinion? I would not shoot my partner (laughs) for having a different opinion. No, I would need a much better reason to shoot you. (laughs) (laughs) But no, that's what I'm saying. There's a moral ambiguity to it that is very interesting, and I was quite sad that it wasn't followed up on. But the fact that I actually could... Yeah. was a marked contrast to, to Forever Evil where I didn't really I wasn't really that invested emotionally in any of the characters mm. even Dick Grayson the, the, the beating of him didn't do anything for me I wasn't bothered by it I'm much more interested in where it's going to go now Lex Luthor knows he's Batman than I was in Forever Evil itself yeah. whereas these opening pages managed to stir up a bigger emotional reaction in me than the six issues of Forever Evil I do, I do think it's a shame they didn't follow up on it Mm. That's my big complaint about it. Black Canary's 80s outfit is a tad impractical, isn't it? A little bit. I mean, the high heels and buccaneer boots don't seem to lend themselves to her type of heroism. And surely then black sticks that stick off her chest and over her shoulders would inhibit arm and neck movements. Mm. You know what I think? When she turns around, she's feel the vision's disrupted. Yeah. And the headband just screams 80s. <laughs> But it seems like this is the issue for the badly dressed. Let's be honest, Cronus the Time Thief's outfit looked like he found it in Mr. Miracle's washing machine, where it had been dyed by all the other clothes. Red, green, yellow, black and white really do not go together, do they? No. Look at his outfit, that's god-awful. Absolutely dreadful, Cronus. Being the master of time has not given you any fashion sense. I, I do like his mask, though. It's just a clock. Oh, yeah, it's got a thing on his head, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like a time. It's like, like it ticks in real time. <laughs> like shark. Yeah, that would be really quite cool if it did. <laughs> uh, my issue with the 80s clothing choices aside, the short vignettes in this issue were lovely. Two to three page action beats showing the heroes strutting their stuff was very satisfying. With, again, the guy Gardner scene being a particular standout. Not that there was anything wrong with the Batman Joker, Blue Beetle, Kronos and Flash Captain Boomerang confrontations, they were all fun, even if they didn't exactly propel the story forward. Mm. Which is a, a bit of a shame, but there's no way Batman, you know, the ever-so-believable and realistic Batman, could throw a Batarang as he does in this comic on page 8 and have it do what he has it do, unless it has some kind of automated control he lifts it out the back of his belt and then just flicks it with his wrist and then from the next panel it's done a huge arc yeah. out the window of where they are round the building so it comes in breaks the glass on the other side distracts the Joker so he can punch him in the face no maybe it's these remote control batarang though that's what I'm saying unless it's a remote control batarang which is possible yeah then there's no way that that little flick of a wrist did that but Batman is totally plausible and absolutely believable oh, yeah. in every given situation. <laughs> I mean, it just shows how cool he is. Don't get me wrong, but I, it, if it's an automated Batarang, it makes a little bit more sense. Mm. And I can buy it a little bit easier rather than looking at it going, <laughs> no way. There is a very Jack Kirby vibe as well to the Batman pages. Did Kirby ever draw Batman? Other know. than in Superpowers? I don't I don't know that he did, actually. Uh, Burns seems to like drawing the most skinny version of the Joker, popularised by Neil Adams and Marshall Rogers, and he even has a Harley Quinn-esque mole 
whose name is Fungus Souffle. <laughs> it's not quite as catchy as Harley Quinn. No. But Fungus Souffle is a damn good name. <laughs> Just like Mucus Membrane. Just like Mucus Membrane, yeah. Fungus Souffle would be the lead singer after John Constantine walked out over creative differences. <laughs> yeah. Creative meaning the rest of his band died. <laughs> That would put a dampener on the success of the band. Would yeah. Probably made the records sell better, though. Probably, yeah. I would have thought so, yeah. Speaking of the 80s, Ms. Magnificent and the Pretty Boys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my dear Lord. Magnificent is an overly muscled bodybuilding woman and the pretty boys never have two people been so wrongly named <laughs> are Arnold Schwarzenegger types and they're all wearing just vests and um, what looks like weightlifters belts and underwear. That's what they're wearing isn't it? Oh, the less said about them the better. Uh, the Suicide Squad all electing to stay after the confrontation with Brimstone well, except Captain Boomerang, was a great scene. It especially lays out the character of Amanda Waller as not being entirely trustworthy, mm. which was part of what I liked about her, to be honest with you. So, the President of the United States has issued an order to apprehend G. Gordon Godfrey for inciting to riot, and we find him in the middle of Gotham Square with big TV screens advertising his rally and none of the cops who were all in Batman's face earlier are arresting him. It's not like he's making it difficult for them to find him, is it? They're probably all in the crowd cheering with him. It does say that later on, yeah. to be fair. In issue four, President Reagan does say to Superman, yeah, they all turned to his side, Superman. I kind of need you to come back. <laughs> Which I liked. I thought that was quite good. Some of the continuity is still a little out of sorts, if you want to get into that kind of thing. This is... Technically, Captain Marvel's first appearance and Wonder Woman has yet to show up, but Batman references the Joker's re-villainizing of Catwoman, and the Jason Todd in this story is very definitely still the pre-crisis Jason rather than the post-crisis version. I've talked before about how keeping a lot of Batman's backstory was just as complicated for the post-crisis readership as it was for the post-New 52 readership. This does make me wonder, was this series declared out of continuity as quickly as those Mike W. Bar Batman stories? Because it can't be, though, because this led to the direct formation of a new Justice League yeah. and the creation of the Suicide Squad and Wally West series, but the Batman and Robin in this is clearly pre-crisis, mm. aren't they? This Jason Todd Robin here isn't the arrogant snot who steals wheels off the Batmobile. No. So... It was just a thought, just what I thought. Uh, this issue felt like it was going through the motions, to be honest. There was a lot of scenes where we get to see the heroes go about their regular business, all of which did the same thing. Whilst we got more scenes of the Phantom Stranger saying, Oh, but Darkseid, this will never work. And Darkseid saying, Yeah, it will. Like two <laughs> petulant children. No, it won't. Yes, it will. No, it won't. Yes, it will. That's pretty much all they do in this issue, isn't it? Mm. To be fair. The Warhounds are released, but we knew that last issue. And the only feeling of forward momentum was from the Suicide Squad, who let Captain Boomerang out of his contract, having completed his mission. It's hard to believe this series was originally pitched as eight issues, as this is largely 20 pages of filler. It's not in any way bad. 
but there's no real feeling of emergency to this particular issue. Only Blue Beetle and Black Canary seem even aware that they're violating not just the law, but a presidential edict. And the opening scene was the most shocking example of that, where Canary's presence led to the death of Deputy Andy, albeit indirectly. And I wanted more exploration of that, how Black Canary felt about it, and Deputy Joey and, and all that stuff, but... Sadly, it was not to be adverts. Oh, what did you think of this one? It was alright, but... It's fine. It's There's fine. nothing to it. And the, the more I read of it, the more I could see why it has gone mostly forgotten. I think thematically this is richer than Forever Evil. It's, think... it's not just Forever Evil, it's more Final Crisis than Forever Evil. Yeah, there is a lot of final... But that's not Vissy's fault. We've talked about this before. No, it's, it's not the fault of this series that later series did the same thing. It's not Final Crisis' fault that that's better. But <laughs> well, that's debatable. I just wouldn't, wouldn't say that this was all that strong or even all that good. Alright, okay. Fair enough. Why not? It was very... It had the idea there, but it didn't have a strong way of telling a story around an idea. So the central spine was interesting, but they didn't actually tell a good enough story with that. Yeah. Alright. And I wouldn't... I'd say even six issues... Was too much. It's padding it out too much, yeah. This issue, certainly... I don't want to go so far as to say padding, because we now live in an era where padded comics are the norm. We got more out of this than we would have done. Yes, that's exactly right. But it certainly didn't feel like it, it propelled the story forward in any way. Uh, adverts Wonder Woman is launched by George Perez, Greg Potter and Bruce Patterson. First the Dark Knight, then the Man of Steel. Now DC does it again. Probably the last time Wonder Woman was uh, in any way a, char- a big seller until uh, Brian Azzarello's run on New 50. Oh, the Kirby Awards. 1985 Eagle Awards. Best Finite Series, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Best art team was George Perez and Jerry Hardway. Best writer was Alan Moore. Favourite story was Crisis Issue 7. That may be what you're thinking of. Yeah. It's not an advert for Crisis. It won an award. Favourite comic was Swamp Thing. Favourite limited series was Crisis. Favourite direct sale only comic was the New Teen Titans. See, you forget how popular New Teen Titans was, don't you? Mm. Favourite editor, Marv Wolfman. Favourite writer, Alan Moore. Favourite artist, George Perez. So they were the 1985 Eagle Awards, only from the DC perspective. Obviously, I don't know if Marvel won anything. Complete in one volume, Batman The Dark Knight Returns, the series that made headlines, collected in a high-quality edition. Trade paperback ships October 14th. That is my trade paperback. I was just going to say. That's the one I've got. That's right. The Meanwhile column is a nice big piece by Dick Giordano about the adventures of Superman, particularly Jerry Ordway and Marv Wolfman's contribution to the rebooting of the Superman myth. And that about wraps it up for ads in Legends number four. This was a big month for Legends crossovers. Next came Warlord issue 114, When a Legend Dies, Cosmic Boy issue 3, Past, Present and Future, Justice League of America issue 260, The End of the Justice League Flesh, Blue Beetle issue 10, Time on His Hands, Warlord issue 115, The Citadel of Fear, Superman volume 2 issue 3, Legends from the Dark Side, Adventures of Superman issue 426, From the Dregs, and Action Comics issue 586, The Champion. From there, straight into Legends issue 5, cover dated March 1987, Let Slip the Dogs of War, Shakespeare quote. 
Of course, the bad guys always quote Shakespeare. The Forever Again by Byrne has Captain Marvel stood amidst the discarded costumes of the main characters in this series, Superman, Batman, et al. The use of a black background and yellow logo stand out particularly well. What did you think? I don't know what it is about these covers. None of them are standing out. I like the Marvel one, even number six. I mean, we've not got that yet, I suppose. I like all the covers. I think, I don't know, they're not poster standard covers like you get now I don't know that they're necessarily some of Burns' best work but I think they're eye-catching enough yeah they're, they're trying to go for a Spider-Man no more look I guess you think? yeah but with all the costumes all over the place unless they've all just shrunk <laughs> just disappeared out of the clothes yeah alright fair enough Lisa is hit by shrapnel, forcing Billy to break his vow and become Captain Marvel. Gifted once again with the wisdom of Solomon, he realises he's been had. But before he can confront the angry mob, he is spirited away by Dr. Fate. He's not alone as Fate slowly gathers together Black Canary, Guy Gardner, Blue Beetle, The Batman, The Flash, The Changeling and Superman. In New York, G. Gordon Godfrey works the crowd up into a lather once more as warhounds attack, and Captain Boomerang finds himself a captive. On live TV, he tacitly threatens to expose Task Force X if he isn't rescued, and Amanda Waller tells Colonel Flagg to either rescue Boomerang or eliminate him. Whichever is easier. Dr. Fate materialises in front of Godfrey for the final confrontation as Darkseid laughs as the heroes will be forced to abandon their beliefs or fight the very people they have sworn to protect. Elsewhere, Robin gets out of his hospital bed, vowing to do his bit to stop Gene Gordon Godfrey. On page one, Lisa says, Thank God I found you to Billy. But when we last saw them in issue four, they were together. Maybe you ran away. Maybe there was a crossover in between these two that we didn't know about. Yeah. It's entirely possible. But as far as this series is concerned, just reading this, they were together the last time we saw them, so this this was a bit incongruous. Yeah. In my opinion. Page two is equally puzzling. From Billy and Lisa's vantage point, the rioters are a fair bit away. Byrne draws them as being quite small, and if we've learned nothing from Father Ted, it's the difference between small and far away. She then runs, but not out of the alleyway, where she's hit by flying shrapnel. This in and of itself is confusing. Where did it come from? How did it hit her? But Billy's dialogue makes it seem even more confusing when he states that they could have killed her. How could they when they are quite far away? It's not even a stray piece of shrapnel. There's a fair bit of it. There's no fault in the art in every other respect. The backgrounds are great. The splash of Captain Marvel has a C.C. Beck quality while it's still being recognisably burn. But I did wonder whether the intent of this scene was lost somewhere along the way. I don't know, well, unless something just collapsed on her for no reason. You can see bits of falling stuff. Yeah, I mean, maybe something just fell on her, but I don't know where from. But he actually says those lunatics could have killed her, implying they've thrown something at her. Maybe there's rioters on the roof. Uh, yeah, I suppose so. I didn't think that was particularly well done. Yeah. I didn't get what hit her. I actually interpret it as just an excuse to get her out of the way so he can become Captain Marvel. And if they were throwing it at the faraway crowd, they must have been throwing it really, really hard for it to knock her out at that distance. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. They, they really are quite far away from our vantage point, aren't they? Mm. I didn't get that. I thought that was... Uh, a bit strange. I thought the plot beat here was a little bit weak yeah. as well. Upon changing back to Captain Marvel, he quickly realises, thanks to the wisdom of Solomon, that he's been had. It's like, a, oh, how could I be so <laughs> stupid? It really is lucky for Darkseid's plan. 
that Billy took this really rather reckless vow to never become Captain Marvel again, isn't it? It's even luckier for the plot that he decides to break his word in the penultimate issue. <laughs> I was really fortunate. Yes. Wasn't it? That, I thought it was a bit naff anyway. I was just... Uh, I've been hard. It was it. all an elaborate it. hoax. He's like, oh, I'm cool with being, with being uh, rused like that. I'm, I'm cool with being not wanting to be Dersh's arm anymore. Yeah. I, I thought that was rather feeble. Yeah. That the only reason this didn't happen earlier is because of him going, I will never become Captain Marvel again. And he doesn't care either. He just says, oh, I've been hard. That's it. Yeah, he's just going, I'll worry about that later. Yeah. <laughs> the later that never comes. Yeah. Apparently. Uh, the majority of the first act in this book is just rounding up the Magnificent Seven by Dr. Fate. But the Guy Gardner scene is worth discussing. In it, Guy goes up against Sunspot, a very tall man who rants and raves about possessing ultimate power and how he will create a new universe before shooting himself in the foot. According to Meta Messages on Comic Boot Resources, this entire scene is a dig at former Marvel Editor-in-Chief Jim Shooter. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. As a kid reading this book, I never got that. I thought it was a pretty cool action scene. Guy quoting Shakespeare doesn't even bother me, although some have complained about it. But it's a fairly well-known quote that even non-theatre goers would probably be aware of. The second way of looking at it is, by knowing what this is, it comes across as quite petty and unprofessional. Byrne has said he was just an art robot on this series, although the text piece in issues 1 and 2 stated that he did have some plot input. But his dislike of Shooter is a matter of public record. Len Wein scripted the dialogue, though, and although Sunspot does bear a passing resemblance to Shooter, it's the dialogue that really hammers home the point. This kind of thing would reach a zenith in the 90s with the image guys taking pot shots at people left and right, and Byrne and Peter David getting into it over David having Rick Jones mocking a Byrne-written Hulk comic within the pages of the Hulk itself. It's possible to be oblivious to it and it just be a well-done scene, although Byrne has also complained that Kiesel, one of my favourite Byrne Incas, redraws an awful lot of the pencils. What did you think of that? That Once you know that this is a mick-take of Jim Shooter, does it seem a little bit petty and unprofessional? I don't know. It, at the end of the day, it's just a fight scene in a comic, really. Yeah, alright. I see, I suppose, as a kid, I didn't know any of that. Yeah. And it does come across as quite a funny beat. Yeah, well, and he lets him blow his leg up, yeah? Yeah. I hope we never saw Sunspot again, because he's got no leg. <laughs> the Blue Beetle scene is, again, very Spider-Man. Yeah. Isn't it? I presume that's deliberate. I did like Byrne's habit of drawing Batman with a black cape and cowl rather than the blue, because it contrasts against the grey really well. Was he the first one to do that? I don't know. Because that pretty much becomes standard, doesn't it? That his cape is black and his cowl is black and the shorts are black and the boots are black. Yeah. That, that becomes standard. I do like the blue interior of the cape, though. Yeah, it is yeah. a nice counterpoint to the fact that everything else is black. It's really very well done. It contrasts nicely against the, the bright purple sky. Yeah, well, Gotham has bizarre nightfalls, doesn't it? Yeah, especially uh, when John Byrne's doing it. Well, that's not him, that's the colorist. Yeah. He's colorblind, so he won't color that in. Unless he is, and that's why it's purple. (laughs) It is entirely possible that that's why it's purple. The boomerang scene, I actually thought was really well done in this one. Yeah. He says Cobber quite a lot, and uh, Dingoes. Initially, he teams up with Flash and Changeling when it looks like he's going to get his head handed to him. 
but his reckless hurling of boomerangs when it's discovered that the warhounds have people in them leads to him being swamped by the baying mob, implying they're going to tear him to pieces. The actual themes of the story are actually quite dark and scary, but there really isn't much between madness and civility. Just get people to go without Wi-Fi for a couple of days (laughs) and watch us descend into madness. Facebook was down for 30 minutes. What should we do? Let's go on Twitter. What if Twitter's down? What happens then? Oh, no. The zombie apocalypse is upon us. Where's Facebook? Uh, Again, a fine issue. Not as pallid as the last. It's leading into the big finale. There's just enough for the reader to get that other stuff is happening. Blue Peter is... Blue Peter? (laughs) Blue Beetle has taken down Kronos since last issue. But, uh, you know, you were never lost, despite not reading the crossovers. Seems very strange to me that the president was so blasé about all of his men turning to G-God and Godfrey's side. And he didn't just let Superman off the edict to bring Godfrey down. That would seem to me to be the logical course of action. Yeah. But it would be nice to see Darkseid do something. Yeah. Other than lounge around watching the TV. Just laughing at the fans. Which is actually what he yeah. does, isn't it? Sits there watching telly for the entire series. Robin getting up at the end sets up an ending that we've seen coming since issue one. But it doesn't mean it's not satisfying. Unless you disagreed with it. I don't know, seeing Jason get up, he should just stay down. <laughs> Save himself a whole ton of grief. Yeah, yeah. Save himself future. a whole crowbar full of grief. Oh, dear me. Uh, adverts, there's a, an advert for a bunch of Star Trek action figures for Kirk, Spock, Klingon and Scotty. There wasn't a Star Trek film out in 1987. Not, uh, Star Trek Four had just come out, I suppose. Uh, Captain Atom. Doesn't say whether it's a miniseries or a regular ongoing. I don't think it was a part of Legends, so I, I paid it no, never mind. Detective Comics issue 572 was the 50th anniversary issue in which Batman met uh, Sherlock Holmes and Slam Bradley. And the elongated man showed up as well. All okay. people who used to have backup strips in Detective Comics, except, of course, for Sherlock Holmes, hmm. who just comes along for the ride. And Shazam gets a four-issue miniseries by Roy and Dan Thomas and Tom Mandrake. Can't help but think that Tom Mandrake may not be the best artist for Captain Marvel, but that's just me. The Legends crossover, as I mentioned earlier on, cover Warlord, Superman and Cosmic Boy. Not really a lot of interest in that one. From here, the crossover took in Cosmic Boy issue 4, cover dated March 1987, Time Without End, and Justice League of America issue 261 for April of 1987, the end of the Justice League of America, Last Stand, before culminating in Legends issue 6 from April 1987. Entitled Finale, the cover by Byrne is a poster shot of the cast with added Wonder Woman. Pretty cool, if a tad misleading. We've known throughout the series this would herald a new Justice League, so it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume that this would be the new Justice League. Yeah. That would be a much better Justice League than the one we got. And that's yeah. not me dissing on Giffen and DiMatteis, but, you know. This issue also featured a change to the creative team, Dennis Yankee, or Yank, or Janky, or Jinky, or Jinx, <laughs> or Jinx, whatever, uh, comes in to finish off the inking for the last ten pages. This is it, the conclusion of the six-part miniseries. Nice cover. Very poster. Yeah. I presume that's what it was used for, the poster for uh, the series. Do you not like that one either? It's not that I don't like any of them. They just don't stand out. Uh, that one's all right as a poster cover. Yeah. Certainly more colourful than you get poster covers being nowadays. I just thought it was okay. I quite liked it. Always a sucker for Burns, Batman and Superman. But he does a great job with Guy Gardner and The Flash. And, and there's no... I think everyone looks great on there. I love that the chase is just a bird. Yeah. <laughs> poor, poor bloke doesn't even get on properly. Does he? Such a shame. <laughs> 
After Darkseid and the Phantom Stanger recap the plot, the Martian Manhunter arrives in Washington, D.C. to offer his support as G-God and Godfrey unleashes the Warhounds. Each hero takes them out their own way. Guy Gardner trashes one handling with a power ring constructed can opener. Superman with a solid punch to the head. Batman through trickery, athleticism and sheer will, whilst Doctor Fate appeals to Godfrey's followers. However, when Godfrey unleashes the parademons from Apocalypse, one of them steals Fate's mystical helmet of Naboo, causing the rabble to turn on it. And whenever I say Naboo now, I can't help but think of the mighty Boosh. Satisfied all is going well, G. Gordon Godfrey turns his attention to Captain Boomerang. Using the Warhounds, Godfrey wants to know why a collection of criminals would have teamed up to stop Brimstone. Before Boomerang can spill the beans, Task Force X prevent him from talking and induct him back into the team, and Godfrey flees, pursued by the Bronze Tiger. Elsewhere, the Warhounds are running amok without Godfrey to guide them, and Batman and Guy Gardner try their best to assist in the streets, while Superman and Captain Marvel do the same with the Urborn Parademons. They are all aided by a last-minute appearance from Wonder Woman. At the White House, terrorist factions breach security and gun down President Reagan. However, Reagan is really a Martian in disguise, and witnessing this heroic act, the President rescinds the executive order. Superman and Captain Marvel dispatch the parademons as the heroes assemble before the baying crowd. G. Gordon Godfrey, his silver-tongued deviltry having brought the Bronze Tiger round to his cause, also rounds on the scene, encouraging the crowd to kill their heroes. On Apocalypse, Darkseid laughs and the Phantom Stranger warns to not get too cocky, kid. Sure enough, the final scene sees a mob of children swarm in, pointing out how wrong this is. Heroes of all stripes represent something, something worth believing in, and Lisa Sutton begs her dad to be her hero again. Fearing the tide of popular opinion is turning, Godfrey claims the heroes are twisting Lisa's mind, and to get her to be quiet, he backhands her across the face. This snaps the adult mob out of it, and as a last resort, Godfrey dons Dr. Fate's mystical helmet, which renders his mind a barren landscape. No one seems terribly upset by this, as these heroes vow to band together as the new Justice League. Well, except Superman, who apparently has better things to do. The Flash, who just can't be bothered. And Changeling, who's already a Teen Titan. As the Phantom Stranger mocks Darkseid's failure, Darkseid doesn't really seem too concerned, as it was only a matter of time before the Earth falls before his power. <laughs> and that's the problem, isn't it? Darkseid just doesn't seem asked. Yeah. Uh, and if that seemed long, it's because it was. Despite costing no more than usual, this issue was a whopping 30 pages of story. No adverts in this issue. Did you not notice when you read it? I didn't. That's why it was uh, extra length. The art in this issue was classic comic book art of the era. Byrne draws a magnificent Phantom Stranger. His Superman, especially in flight, is second to no one, and the change in Inca wasn't even noticeable. The fight between the Parademons and Superman and Captain Marvel is all kinds of cool, and Batman has really looked better. Some of the colouring choices are a little off bright red backgrounds are always a bit off-putting, but, you know, for the most part, I was thoroughly entertained by the cover. Speaking of Batman, it's a very Bronze Age Batman that we're seeing here, isn't it? Yeah. Complete with quite bad 80s action hero dialogue. Mm. Oh dear. Not quite as fancy as the Man of Steel, but it gets the job done. Can't really see that. When he punches him and says, lights out, losers. <laughs> I really see Batman saying lights out losers to anybody, do you? Maybe, maybe this Batman did. <laughs> yeah, this Batman was was uh, was quite pithy. Bronze Tiger's line, Bengals can't be choosers, <laughs> was so bad. It was genius. 
And we get the first indication here that it's G. Gordon Godfrey's voice causing the brainwashing. This has been left ambiguous throughout the story, which I liked. Yeah. I like that that's something that was only revealed in the last issue. <laughs> Bengals can't be Jesus. <laughs> Come on, that's terrible. And yet, funny. It's mostly terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry, I laughed out loud at it when I, when I read it. It was brilliant. Excellent. Full, full, full page shot, sorry, of Wonder Woman with subtle alterations to her costume. The belt is not yellow, but white. A change I didn't understand, but that actually looks quite effective. She seems to name herself Wonder Woman here, this being her first canonical post-crisis appearance in the present day. And whilst her first appearance is a little verbose, the art is exceptional. Yeah. When you're in the middle of crushing a warhound, I doubt that you would be saying something like, though you be brother to Cerberus himself, still your fury is as nothing before the matchless might of Diana, firstborn of the noble Hippolyte. Diana, princess of the Amazons, those whom the man's world will soon call Wonder Woman. And Guy Gardner's just sat there going, she's got a great ass. Maybe she practiced that. That speech in the mirror. What an excuse to say it. <laughs> in the mirror the night before. Diana, Princess of... Oh, damn it! That would have been quite cool if we'd seen her do that. Um, yeah, because guy checking out was fun. The ending with the children would be really, really very twee if it yeah. hadn't been foreshadowed from issue one. So that kind of makes it palatable. Mm. Still a little bit twee, though. Yeah. I believe the children are our future. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was okay. They, they earned it. It was foreshadowed. It didn't seem as bad as it could have been. And All right, fair enough. Godfrey slapping Lisa made me wish Captain Marvel had ripped his arms out of his socket. Which he would have done. Yeah. <laughs> this was published 20 years later. <laughs> of all the times to not want to do that to somebody. <laughs> or stab him through the back with a sword. <clears throat> or decapitate him didn't happen. Uh, when did the parademons give Godfrey Dr. Fate's helmet? And how did he hide it under that coat? And how, yeah, where was it in that coat? Yeah. Unless the coat is an omni-coat that he reaches in and just pulls it from Apocalypse. Yeah. It's as good an explanation as any, isn't it? Because <laughs> yeah. you're not going to get one in the store. Boom tubes in his pocket. Yeah, he's got a boom tube in his inside pocket. That perfectly works. I have to say, I think this would have been much better if this had actually been the lineup for the Justice League. I mean, I like the gif in Dimatteis GLA as much as anyone when I read it, but it was lacking a certain grandeur. I also found it interesting that both post-Crisis and in the New 52, Darkseid was responsible for the League. Yeah. So, again, something from this series being paid off, not paid off, being stolen by a series later on down the line, although I don't know whether they were aware of that. They probably wouldn't admit it if they were, would they? Mm. A satisfying wrap-up. No surprises in the story, but solid superhero storytelling. Feels more complete than the end of Forever Evil did, even though it essentially does the same thing. Legends, as we've pointed out, seems largely forgotten today, which I don't really think is deserved. It's entertaining, with good art, with a recognisable theme that's still relevant. The use of media to incite hate. It's not epoch-making. And probably the first time a crossover wasn't a major change or featured a death and did not inspire a video game or a toy line. Maybe that's why it's not well remembered. Yeah. What did you think of it as a overall? I didn't think it was all that strong. Did you not? No. Why not? Um, I don't know. It Excellent, good. No, what was about <laughs> it was, like I said before, it didn't have that... It had a, a, a decent idea behind it. 
but it didn't have a good enough story around it. And it felt, for a lot of it, it felt like he was either being padded out or it was just a lot of different threads that uh, weren't quite connecting until the end. Well, see, I, didn't, I don't think comics are like that anymore. The lots of different subplots bubble along and then all come together at the end. But you Forever kind of, Evil's one story. You kind of expect it to be one story in a miniseries, though. Well, I think that is. What do you not think is one story about that? It's not that it's one story, but it only becomes one story in the last issue or so. Yeah, because the first five issues are leading up to the finale. So you're used to them now being one story. A linear story, it told, and all the subplots are in the satellite titles. Well, that's what I expect from a miniseries. Well, I think that tells a full story. I didn't read that and think, oh, I wish I'd read that issue of Cosmic Boy. But to be honest, I never <laughs> think that about Cosmic Boy. But I didn't feel like I'd missed anything by not reading the tie-ins. Conversely, I actually thought the Justice League issues were better than the main Forever Evil series. But I think this maybe would have benefited from having those threads in the tie-in issues. Because it may have done. That way it's focusing on the story rather than all the other characters. But I, 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 don't, I don't understand how you don't think this didn't focus on the story. It, it was primarily Darkseid and G. Gordon Godfrey, and that was all told in these six issues. Yeah, but there was very little of that. There, there was very... To me, reading what? it, it was more on, oh, uh, I'm Blue Beetle, I'm going around, oh no, I've got into a spot of bother, I'm Black Canary. There is, around. I'll give you that there are a lot of scenes in it that seem tangential at best. Yeah. Of them just being heroes for the sake of being heroes. And none of them really seem to give a damn that they're breaking a presidential edict. No. And the president even seems to not be too bothered about that. It, yeah, it just seems like no one involved in this or in this was bothered about anything. <laughs> no one cared whether you were working on Legends or in Legends. Uh, unless you were Superman. <laughs> yeah. Superman kind of cared about it. When he wasn't sitting around the White House. Well, he also did get beamed off to Apocalypse, didn't he, in a tie that <laughs> we didn't cover. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so it ends, you know, uh, almost. There was one final issue of Secret Origins, issue 14, cover dated May 1987, that was the Secret Origin of the Suicide Squad, but that was published more as a lead-in to the Suicide Squad series rather than an official Legends tie-in. So, was it any good? Yeah. <laughs> I'd say yes. It's interesting to contrast this with what we did last week. Whilst Forever Evil and Legends only exist to be a crossover story and set up developments for the future, both managed to approach it quite differently. Forever Evil was more about the DC Universe at large and how that story fitted into the overall tapestry of that universe rather than dealing with any emotional ramifications of the events, whereas Legends was concerned with a central identifiable theme. Yes, Forever Evil asked what happens when evil wins... But Legends was far more insidious in asking how does evil win? How do we let evil in and then just do nothing about it? Mm. That's how evil wins. Both suffered from similar problems. The disbanding of the Justice League, quite a huge event in DC terms, was not handled at all in Legends, despite it being a series designed to usher in a new era for that team. And there were many confrontations referred to in Forever Evil that were not seen within the pages of the series itself. I don't know that I think either one deserved to be a big event. And I do suspect that, like this, Forever Evil probably won't go down as a classic. Yeah. And both have the same pros and cons. Like, we saw, for example, the Justice League show up in issue one, and then by issue six they disbanded and we don't know why. 
because yeah. that wasn't part of this story. And Superman gets summoned to Apocalypse by Darkseid, and we never get mention of that again. Yeah. But that was the same as in Forever Evil. They would mention stuff that was occurring in, in the tie. So in that respect, both of them were pretty much the same. Hmm. My personal thinking is this told a much more cohesive story in and of itself. I'd say Forever Evil would. But you thought Forever Evil told a better story. If you're ignoring the Justice League Titans... Does it not? Uh, yeah, yeah. You can read Forever Evil without reading the Justice League Titans. Uh, yeah, I see, I thought sometimes maybe if if I just read Forever Evil, but you were like, oh, you're going to read Justice League as well. Yeah. I thought if I just read Forever Evil as well, maybe I would have had a different opinion of it. Yeah. But the Justice League issues were better than Forever Evil. I mean, it did have the slight um, disadvantage of coming out of the Justice League ongoing. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Well, that was it for this time. We hope you enjoyed us looking at two completely different crossovers. That were quite similar. That were ended up being quite similar. We should have done this when we did Final Crisis. Yeah. Sure. Uh, next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, we're going to wrap up Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale's Colours Trilogy, because so far that's all it is, Yeah. with Hulk Grey. We're going to finally get around to doing Hulk Grey, so we will see you next week. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you want to email in, feel free. And we will be back same time, same channel, same same network, same everything else. Just you know, subscribe. That's great. Leave us iTunes reviews. All the cool kids are asking for iTunes reviews. Are they? Yeah, but apparently we can't read them if you're in other countries. So I've never seen the point of leaving any. Fair enough. <laughs> See you next week. Bye bye. Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them, and look after them, but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and Hey Kids Comics is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, your one-stop shop for a plethora of truly fine shows. And we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Hey Kids Comics.